we're trying to find people that are on the brink. We're looking for the ones that are running out of reasons to be alive. And I'm in a unique position with the foundation. I'm the vice president. So I get to see, and I'm the director of operations, so I get to see everything all the time. I talk to our ambassadors who are volunteers. I talk to the gyms that we bring on as partners to train the folks that we sponsor. I talk to the athletes. And every month at least I hear a story about somebody that is alive because of jujitsu. And we, we talk about it all the time, like, you know, jujitsu saved my life. And it's such a cliche, but it's the real deal. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Pohada Podcast. I am Matt Browse of Pohada Photography and still, so far, the host of this show. As you heard there, my guest this time around is TJ Kreitzer of BJJ Purple Belt and Vice President and Director of Operations of We Defy Foundation. If you've heard TJ on a podcast before, you know we're about to talk about We Defy and their mission to help disabled combat veterans reclaim their lives through jiu-jitsu. Specifically, we'll talk about the jiu-jitsu impact on mental health as well as the challenges that some veterans face after their service. If, as you listen, these things and the We Defy mission is something with which you resonate, please go to wedefyfoundation.org to find out how they can help and or how you can help. And I want to personally challenge anyone listening to this to pause it right now and head over to wedefyfoundation.org and make a donation right now to the scholarship fund. Also, if you've heard TJ on podcasts before, you might not have heard too much candid personal chatter about him. So those of you who don't know him too well personally, you might feel like you do after this. And to those of you who do know him already, I'm sorry. As usual, thanks, as always. To Polly and Kathy Brooks for letting us hang out and record. And a huge shout out to the podcast sponsor, 5 Watt Coffee. Please write a funny five-star review of the podcast on the Apple Podcast app, and I'll maybe send you a gift card for the best coffee in the world, 5 Watt Coffee. And without further ado, my good friend TJ Kreitzer. Most of these that I do, I do virtual. Because, especially with uh, the last year, so it's been hard to be... I haven't been able to be in the same room, so this is kind of this is exciting to me because you get the feedback. You know, yeah, I mean? you can actually communicate. You can actually communicate, like real communication. And, yeah, and so even though it won't necessarily come across in the recording, you get that rapport. Yeah, and yeah. it enhances the the messaging. I think. Well, and the ones I'm assuming the podcasts you've done in your advocacy role for We Defy have been like a structured, sensible line of questioning with something of a time limit for the whole thing. And it needs to be like consumable, approachable overall episode length. Yeah, and sometimes they get chopped up and yeah, disregard know. all of that. <laughs> like that's all yeah. neat, but this is a conversation, not yeah. an interview. And it's a trade-off though, because so we're gonna loosen the reins and just talk about Weedify and other stuff and whatever. But the trade-off is if you say something stupid, I'm <clears throat> more likely to cut it and put it at the front of the episode rather than I am cut it entirely to make you sound good. So <laughs> yeah, trade off. people what go 30 minutes, I think like the average sure. listener is like, th- I, I have a friend who I did a podcast with and he keeps his under 30 minutes. Cause yeah. he says most of the time people cut off at like 35. Right. So I try to keep it down there f- for his purpose. Cause it is a very, it's a structured, sure. here's what I'm, here's the point. It's more of an inspirational athletic performance one. Yeah. Yeah. Which is different. What I, 
but it's, I it think, is just generally more consumable though. Like it is. If I see a podcast and it's four hours, that yeah, better right. be somebody that I'm actually interested in talking about stuff I'm interested well, in. Well, that's that's the benefit of this for our community is that we want to hear each other's stories in yeah. a way that we don't we don't get to do this together unless it's a right. Friday night or Saturday night and we're just hanging out. So now I get to hang out with guys like HBK that I've never met. Yeah. Or Potty Bomb who I've never been in a room with other than when he's destroying me. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. a totally different experience. Yeah, because most of us roll into the gym, literally roll. That mm-hmm. hour is up, hour 15 is up. You change and you hustle off to work or yeah. hustle off to pick up the kids. You, you know, there's not a lot of time sitting around getting to know the fact that this guy's a lawyer, that guy's a rock star, this guy invented medical devices. Yeah, you ne- knows never know. And I, the expertise that some of the people have um, is just astounding. Yeah. And you wouldn't you wouldn't have the exposure to that and get the gains from their perspectives without this kind of medium. You just don't have the time. Yeah, but you well, you can consume that information while you're on the bike at the gym, right? Yeah, you know, or in the drive to work. You know, you so it's it's like kind of a passive way to get to know details of people you didn't know. Yeah, yeah. and it's it, it's so cool because you feel like okay, now I know you on the mat, but now I know you somewhere else. Yeah, and I think that will just enhance. Our, all our relationships. Yeah, you're a person you know, now, not a training yeah, partner. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is definitely the first time there's only been coffee and water on the yeah. table for one of these. I think Polly and I are growing up a little bit. Oh yeah. <laughs> I got I got one I got one shot worth maybe two of whiskey and maybe four. I gotta quit. Yeah. Depending just, on how just, long we go. If we want to go that route. And if yeah, we don't, that's fine. Just sizing you up, I would have guessed about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got to drive. If I wasn't driving, it'd be different. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do we start on topic? Uh, what, what, what do you What do you do with We Defy? To, oh, hold on. Give me Give me the spiel. Give me like you, a short version of the recording spiel. yet or? Oh, we've been okay, recording. You know, I, I was hoping. Yeah. No, I was because, yeah. Um, I like the cold start. Um, yeah. So We Defy Foundation is a nonprofit that sponsors disabled vets to train jujitsu as a way to help cope with their um, service-connected disabilities and then also help them uh, readapt to civilian life. The uh, foundation started because um, there's a guy named Alan Chabarro down in Texas, and he's a a Green Beret and was, uh, I think he was the first, if not the first, one of the first, pretty sure it was the first Green Beret black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And when he got out of the military, um, he started to notice um, he was having some struggles with some different things and um, found that, uh, you know, asking for help was hard. And uh, finding a, a place to be was tough. And he, but he had this jiu-jitsu background, and he started his own gym and started to see how that ownership and that activity kind of helped him to find a sense of purpose again a little bit. And one day, a guy came in with his daughter, and he, this guy's name is Joey, and he used to train uh, different martial arts. I think he was a wrestler. It was maybe a black belt in, in another, like a striking form when he was a kid, something like that. So he already had an interest in it, and he wanted his daughter to uh, train, and he was also, had also been in the Army. And Alan, when he came in, you know, introduced his daughter and said, hey, Joey, why don't you train? Joey has two amputated legs and half of one of his arms missing. And he said, well, I I don't, I don't know if, if we, if that's realistic. Um, And Alan said, why don't we give it a shot? I mean, let's, let's try, let's see what happens. 
So Alan and Joey started to train, and Alan, um, he was a fourth-degree black belt now, um, and Alan is a monster. He is gigantic and terrifying, but he's got this heart of gold and um, this kindness, but in, paired with an intensity. It's, it's He walks in a room, and everything stops. So he and Joey started to train, and he had to change jujitsu to fit Joey's body type. And um, after a little while, Alan talks Joey into, instead of just doing privates, coming to class. And Joey started to do that. And then he, he started to train with everybody else and started to compete and started to get really serious. And at one, one of his legs used to be longer than the other. And he went under the knife again to even them out to help with jujitsu so that he could continue to, you know, learn and, and they could tailor the program to his body type and needs. And he started losing weight and he started to see that, Hey, you know, this, what's happening to me is kind of me reclaiming my life from what he had lost because he lost those, um, body parts in war to an IED explosion. And, um, now, like I said, he competes, he's a purple belt. And, uh, last year before COVID back in the fall of 2019, the Fulton Brujitsu, which were you, Paul, were you at that? I think, okay. I've known Joey for a little bit and I've known Alan a little longer. Um, Joey came up to that. I've never seen Joey roll, but Joey had a match against, um, a guy named Joe Miller, who's one of our ambassadors in Wisconsin. They're both purple belts. And um, I thought it was going to be cool to see. I wasn't emotionally prepared for watching that event. And it was, I mean, the whole place stopped. And you, you could drop a pin in watching what what Joey did against against Joe, uh, Joe Miller. Um, and when we were getting ready for that, uh, the, the folks who were putting it on said, hey, do you think Joey will fight? I go, well, I don't know. I'll ask him. And he said, yeah, I, I'll do it, but I don't want to be up against another guy that's disabled like me. And he said, I've been offered that before, and I, I just don't, I don't think that showcases what we're trying to show. We're trying to show that whatever you bring to the mats is just like what everybody else brings to the mats, and you're an equal there. And sometimes if, if you put me against someone that um, is obvious, you know, is conspicuous, it, you lose that effect. I'm here to show people what we can still do, that we, that we can do things that you don't think we can. Um, so to backtrack just a touch, when Alan and Joey started to see what they could do with this sport together, they said, I wonder if we can roll this out to other veterans. And that was the birth of We Defy Foundation. The original idea just stemmed from, "Hey, let's see if you can do this." Yeah, let's let's see. It was it was Alan identifying that, "Hey, there's an opportunity here to um, maybe do something really unique and challenging for both of us." Because it wasn't just let's put Joey on the mats and see what happens. It was Alan taking his expertise and forcing himself to change it to fit Joey. So it was more of a, a two-way street for both of them. That's when we talk about the founders, 
it's them together. It's that team. It's those two people that had that fumbled through it a little bit together and figured out how to pull it off and then duplicate it for other veterans starting in Texas and then uh, growing from there. What was the phrase you used? Service. Service connected. Uh, service related disabilities. Was that service connected? Service connected disabilities. Tell me what. Give me the broad definition of that. So when you are in the military and you're on active duty, or if you're in the guard and you're activated on orders to go deploy, um, if you incur any injuries, physical or mental, that get into your uh, military records, you can claim it with the VA. And there's different kinds of disability. You get some pay, you get some medical services, things like that, because it's documented. And it's called a service-connected disability. And then there's a rating that you get based on how much of it is service-connected. And um, it goes all the way up to 100%. It doesn't mean you're 100% disabled. That's that's what they say. But that what they mean is what the, the compensation you get is supposed to bridge the gap between wages you will have lost later in life because of uh, injuries that in- occurred during the military, during military service. So we try to service combat veterans primarily at 80% disability. So I'm, I'm at 30% because I've got some hearing things and I've um, got some heart things and I've got some ankle things and that's got me to 30. But a lot of guys who come back, you know, from, um, from, you know, war have a lot of other, uh, things that they've got to deal with that, if they did file through the VA, they can get a rating for. I think sometimes it's hard to get veterans to actually file with the VA um, because there is that I, I don't I don't need help, I'm fine. Uh, that attitude that that self sufficiency that comes up and some guys, uh, you know, they'll say I, I'm okay. I don't need that benefit. I should give it to somebody else because I'm fine. But that benefit's there. It's, 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 you're not, you're not, they're not going to go bankrupt because you asked, you know, you should ask. That's one of the, when you sign up, that's one of the benefits you're signing up for. And there's a whole lot of things that there's a tremendous amount of benefits that the VA offers that a lot of guys aren't aware of or don't have access to because they didn't claim it. And uh, you really miss out. I've had generally a good experience with the VA. I know that they, the ropes or the, the, Getting into the VA system can be difficult. I've had uh, a couple of really good advocates that were VA professionals that helped me through those ropes when it was time for me to file stuff. Uh, That made a huge difference. And the medical care I've gotten from them has been largely very, very good when I've I've requested it. Um, And I just think it's not a perfect process, but uh, if you're military, you really want to you really want to register and, and go through that process. It's worth it. The, the, you want the benefits for sure. Well, and relative to the, the, what I've seen of the mission of we defy the key phrase you used there was physical and mental impacts or whatever the word you yeah. used. Right? Yeah. F- it's physical be, it's beyond. I've got an ankle thing and a, and a heart thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you have enough ankle things, you could get up to 80% sure. <laughs> finger things, all kind of elbows, you know, whatever. Yeah. But we're looking we're trying to find people that are on the brink. Yeah. We're looking for the ones that are running out of reasons to be alive. And I'm in a unique position with the foundation. I'm the vice president. So I get to see, and I'm the director of operations. So I get to see everything all the time. 
I talk to our ambassadors who are volunteers. I talk to the gyms that we bring on as partners to train the folks that we sponsor. I talk to the athletes and every month at least I hear a story about somebody that is alive because of jujitsu. And we, we talk about all the time, like, you know, jujitsu saved my life and it's such a cliche, but it's the real deal. And I talked to a guy two weeks ago who said, you know, I, I've been clean for eight months. And if I was not in the gym every day, I would be on heroin like I was before. And by now I would probably be dead. And that's not just a guess. I mean, these are people who know where they were and how being a part of a community and a part of the gym can bring them out of, of where they were. Yeah. They might even know because they considered the option. And not just that, but that they tried Yeah, and maybe failed. We've got, we have people with suicide attempts that, um, you know, a, a number of people that have been on that road and have found their, clawed their way back on the mats. Yeah. Um, That's so, a good failure. Fail, yeah, I mean, fail at God, that. you know. Be a yeah. failure at that. And I think, you know, almost all of us know somebody who didn't fail at that, who successfully took their life. And um, that is a horrible thing to endure as a, as a, as a friend. Um, my best friend killed himself when he was in England, um, stationed. This is a little while ago now. Um, while I was still on active duty and, uh, I went to the air force Academy with him and we were, we just became best friends and his family was not uh, a healthy environment for him. So when he went on leave, he would come to see my family, even if I wasn't there. And I grew up with two sisters and he, uh, was their older, older brother because he was older than me. And my parents took him in. That was just the family I grew up in. When I was a kid in high school, every weekend there was somebody at our house, a cousin or whatever. It was just, that's how we were. But he, um, he was my best friend for years and he went to England to be stationed I ended up going to Korea and I started to notice some things about him when we were far apart like that I could tell something wasn't quite right but I didn't know how deep it went until later and when I came back from Korea and I was done being stationed there I went to my parents house and my dad picked me up from the airport and and drove me home and I was in the kitchen with him and my mom and my grandma and my one sister the other sister, I don't, I don't, I can't remember if she was like that memory. I can't remember exactly if she was there in the room or not um, when my dad said this. But he said, I have to tell you some something bad. Um, I don't know how to say this, but um, Frank killed himself. And my sister, there, there's a few times in, in, a, in a human life where you hear a sound that another person makes, this cry of just despair and horror and it's not that it's it, it's it's visceral and it's one of those moments it's burned into me I'll never forget it and she stood up and screamed and ran out of the room and um, I actually took a couple steps back and I folded my arms and I remember leaning back up against the uh, refrigerator I'm a very analytical process driven person and I like to accumulate data and then figure out what the next step is. And 
that's what I do in crisis management. I, 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 I'm kind of good at crisis management. I'm trained to deal with it. And that's exactly the mode I went into. And I didn't really feel anything. It was just, okay, what do we know about this? And is there an action that we need to take now? And so I told my dad, I said, well, what happened? What, what, what do you, how do you know? What did we find out? He goes, well, I got home and there was a message on the machine from Air Force Mortuary Affairs. And they said that they needed to get a hold of you. And since you were in transit from Korea, and this is 2003, <laughs> we didn't have cell phones or things like that. It's, you know, no messenger. So um, my dad called them and they said that he had killed himself and that the family had asked that I transfer his remains when he arrives in the United States because every service member that comes back has someone to meet them and take them to their final resting place. And I was just, I was terrified. I mean, that was, I think that was up to that point in my life might've been the most scared I've ever been when they told me that. Cause I, I don't know how, what am I, what do I do? How do I, how do, how do I, how do I do this? I just, I had no answer. Um, and I was supposed to get my car in LA because it was in Korea and my, I had a girlfriend that was in Phoenix that we, I was going to get engaged and I had to go pick up the ring from somewhere else. And then I was going to go to Utah where my next, how do I do all these things? So that three week period was just shredded all the plans. And the number one priority became get to Dover air force base, identify the paperwork that says that this box has his remains in it and fly with that to Chicago and then Dayton for uh, a burial and a military ceremony. So um, I'm a very emotional person. I feel things hard and I express them as well. I'm not shy about expressing how I feel, but it's usually in terms of for other people. When things happen to me, I, I don't cope that way I almost shut down and just I get very like I said I'm, I'm methodical what do we know contingency management and that's kind of how I handled this whole thing um, and when I took his remains to the funeral home or to the first to Chicago got off the airplane onto the ramp looked at the yeah that's the casket watch it go on to the next airplane get back on air there airplane I'm in my service dress my Air Force service dress and um, we finally get to the funeral director and I give him Frank's body, you know, basically this, this box, this casket and the paperwork. And then the next day is going to be the funeral. So my family comes down and we're all there. And, um, there was a person in this, in my friend's life who was an abuser. And, um, I don't know the depth to which it went because he never really got into it but I knew some stuff happened and I don't know what it was, but it wasn't good. And when we were in that funeral, I heard that sound again, that cry during eulogy and other things. And it was this person. And I was so angry. I thought to myself, you don't get to feel that right now. I'll never forget that feeling. And that's another moment that stuck with me through that, that process. So after carrying the casket, because I was one of the pallbearers and putting it down, I remember my sister walked with me arm in arm, and we put a uh, flower on the casket. And then I walked away. 
And they did a 21 gun salute. And they played taps. And I stood away from everyone, sunglasses on, so no one could see my tears. And there weren't a lot, but there were a couple that fell. And then when taps stopped, I wiped the tear away. And I turned around and I said, okay, it's time to be a soldier again. Um, I think that's where if you've experienced a suicide you you wonder what did you miss what did you not what could you have done different and sometimes we take inappropriate responsibility for events that we can't control um, that's the aftermath of a suicide when that person ends, clearly they're suffering, but it then gets transferred to other people. And I think one of the powerful things about what We Defy does is it takes people in this community where suicide is rampant. There's about 1% of, any, at any given time, 1% of the populace is serving. About 7% has served, but 20% of suicides are veterans. Um, we're there to stop that. And I know we're not going to stop all of them, but we're going to stop some of them. And I think that that's why we're so driven to do what we do. Well, and a, a part of Frank's thing was, it seems from what you've told me here, being removed from the community that was the support network. Yeah. So part of the mission of We Defy should probably be the human mission is to create and cultivate communities upon which people can rely right yeah it, that's very much um what the point is i think with frank he experienced what a lot of folks in the military do even though he was overseas and he had a unit to be a part of he was isolated right like you said he lost his connection to people that got him and that he could be him with that was my family that's just the relationship and him losing access to that. I don't want to blame that, but I think you hit a hit it on the head that he lost some components of, of things that were important. Um, and veterans deal with isolation when they come back from war because they're in a unit where the only people you could trust were the people you were at war with that were by your side and you didn't know who was trying to blow you up. It could have been a kid walking down the street and you, you don't know. So you come back sometimes with what I call it like a trust deficit and you learn the only people you can trust are the people you serve with. You don't trust civilians anymore. Um, you know, that's a, that's a major challenge for a lot of, um, folks when they leave the military and they also have had a sense of purpose that's gone when they leave you know the military it's easy it's right we're serving to protect the constitution protect our country protect our friends and families that all makes sense when you leave that things don't make as much sense anymore so that can be a problem 
you also have a structure around you that it's not that you're told how to do things all the time. I mean, basic training is that way to help kind of you know, to break you down, build you up. But there's still a structure that tells you not not what to do, but maybe how. It guides the way you act. It guides um, the tasks you have to accomplish. And when you leave the military, that's gone, and there's no book. It's like raise, like having a kid. My first kid, I was like, damn it, I wish there was some kind of like manual that really, oh, there's There's like 400 of them, and none of them make any sense, and none of them apply to your kid because it's your situation, <laughs> yeah. right? So when you leave the military, you have that same issue to deal with where that lack of structure leads to um, potentially like, what do I do now? I know pilots who were afraid to leave the military because they thought all I can do is fly. And these guys are type A, super competitive, highly educated, incredible crisis managers, but they're scared because this is all I know how to do. That's all I'm worth. And that's not true. But that's the story we sometimes tell ourselves. Um, so then there's that pride part where I'm fine. I don't need help. Or there's a part where you're, man, I need help. But if I go see a therapist and I have a security clearance or I want this job or and I get labeled with a thing, what's going to happen then? Do I, will, that, will that destroy my future career? Will that take me out of what I want to do? That is a terrifying prospect. And, and I think, I mean, I've thought, I've dealt with that. You know, that's so hard because with flying and, you know, being certified by the FAA. Like, how do you navigate when you do need help? What do you do? You know, how, how do you find the help and then not hurt yourself by accident? And I, by and large, I found that those fears are mostly unfounded, that there are ways to get assistance and help. But... Sometimes it's scary and you don't necessarily trust the system because you have learned to have a trust deficit. So those are all just, those are just some of the challenges and everybody's got a different balance of them that you, you know, you can come back with. You add anxiety, depression, maybe PTSD, physical disabilities that you've gained that impact your life. And you have um, some challenges sometimes. Well, you hear people talk about working against an existing social stigma relating to mental health and even just in a more general sense the need for help well if if the consequences perceived or real could also very likely affect like your ability to be employed mm -hmm. that's a whole different level you know yeah there's many more incentives to not do something about it right now sure and to wait and then if you wait too long man have some serious consequences and they're not just for you or for the people that love you. Should we have some whiskey? Yeah, we should. Okay. That's hard to call. Cheers. So with jujitsu, I feel like I get, um, and I'm just setting myself relative to the mission of we defy as if I could. Right. Um, I feel like I get a personal sense of purpose, something I'm working on becoming or doing or getting better at. I feel like I get a community, people having that shared experience, doing the same thing I'm doing. What else do I get? 
Um, you know, I, I talk to people in groups about this concept a lot, the why jujitsu, and you have to talk to people outside jujitsu because the jujitsu company or community obviously gets it, but it's a small community. And if we really want to touch a lot of lives, we got to get to funds that are outside. Well, you do that by knowing how this works. Um, I have an undergrad in psychology. Um, if I wasn't, hadn't been a pilot, I probably would have wanted to go into that field. Um, I love it. I've stayed current on, um, you know, different parts of the, uh, therapy, um, what they're dealing with in the military in terms of like PTSD, another concept that's newer calling called moral injury. And I'm not an expert on this stuff, but I, I've got a good layman's understanding of it. So one of the first things I did when I was an ambassador was start to figure out why does jujitsu accomplish this stuff and what components can I explain to people to give them a sense of why this works. And if you're in jujitsu, you're going to get this. It makes, you're going to make sense. And you're probably going to be able to tell me most of what I'm going to, what I'm going to say next. But this is for the people, especially that aren't in jujitsu and why it works. So we already talked about what veterans come back with, what kind of challenges they have. Um, but I talk about in five, five components. There's the fitness aspect. There's human touch. There's structure. There's community and there's achievement. So fitness, we always hear about if you've got anxiety, depression, and we talk about the importance of, of being physically fit, what it does for your self-image, what it does endorphin-wise, and that, that all makes sense. I think that's pretty common knowledge. Um, you know what the term rumination means? Go. Cool. Rumination is basically, it's a thought process we get in where we're trying to problem solve, but we can't solve the problem. And that is a major component of anxiety and depression. It exists in um, PTSD is, is more than just a cognitive thing. Sometimes, sometimes there's actual neurological or physical uh, issues with the brain that can, uh, that are all rolled up into it. It's really complicated, but then moral injury is another term. That's a cognitive issue. Um, and these rumination loops are when you have a problem that you can't solve. And they typically cause stress and anxiety. Well, the fight or flight system is built to help us defend ourselves when we feel a threat. Sometimes these problems involve threats, but they're not physical threats. Well, that physiological system still gets activated. So now you've got cortisol and other uh, things that are in your body that are meant to help you fight the saber-toothed tiger. But there's no tiger to fight. It's just your mind. And that stuff never gets utilized. And it is devastating to the human body over a long time when it's not expelled. So there's a whole other aspect as to why fitness is useful. It's using some of those things that are in your body with that fight or flight system. You take in an extra step with jujitsu. There's somebody choking you or trying to choke you. You know what your body does and your brain does? It stops ruminating. You're not trying to solve that problem anymore. You're trying to solve the other problem of the giant mat dude that's 200 and what? 60 pounds? No, I'm a lean 220, yeah. bro. <laughs> 285. So this guy's on top of you, smashing you. You are not ruminating anymore. And your fight or flight system's fully activated and doing what it's supposed to do. You're breaking that loop. And you do it one time and maybe enjoy it. And a couple hours later after class, you go back into this sequence again. And now you're back, you're back in this loop. So what happens when you come to jujitsu again? You break the loop again. You get in the practice of breaking this loop over and over. 
you start to see why jujitsu is a viable therapy for things like mental illness because it stops that negative process and replaces it. It's just like addiction when you have someone who's addicted to drugs. It's not just enough to quit the drugs. A lot of times you have to replace it with something else. So that physiological component of fitness and threat of harm, even though it's simulated, it's enough to make the mind and body do what it's supposed to do in that moment and effectively reset what's happening. So I think recreational activities are awesome for mental health, not just for veterans, for everybody. But jujitsu is particularly effective because of that, that threat component that you can't get in CrossFit. You can't get it in a lot of other places. Um, I think human touch is super underestimated in terms of its, its importance. Because you think about your kids, and they're seven or eight, you know, and even smaller, bigger, you want to hug them all the time, and you, and you chase them, and you hold their hand, and before too long, like, they don't want to hold your hand anymore. And that crushes us, right? Because we want that touch. We need it. We, and we connect to people with that. Um, in our society, we don't get that. We're not allowed to. It's weird to touch. For a man to touch another man, you know, it's kind of sometimes it makes some people uncomfortable. What do we do in jiu-jitsu? It's all we're doing is creating these bonds with people. So now not only do you have these positive physiological responses, again, from touch, like you do from fitness, but now you're also creating emotional bonds with teammates that are, yeah, they're trying to kill you at the time, you know, you're, but there's a component of that touch that matters. And I think it's really important and I think it's overlooked. Um, structure is important because it kind of mimics what we see in the military. We have a rank structure. Um, you have some schools have like a syllabus or at least a way of doing things that is predictable. There's class. It's every day at this time, you know, this day when you leave the military, if you're looking for a job and you got nothing else going on right now, or you're having trouble at home and the whole world feels out of control, you get in a jujitsu gym, you have something to hang your hat on again. And it's just that little bit of, you know, a little bit of structure that can help and these are all these things are just layers upon layers that help get you from one place to maybe to another. Um, the next thing, and, and arguably the most important, would be that community. We've kind of talked about that, and this is where veterans really struggle. I think is that they often don't have good connections outside the military. They have that trust deficit. But you get in the gym, and you start to realize that everybody has a story. And everybody is dealing with something. And every one of us has a little bit of a narcissistic streak where we don't necessarily think that anybody will understand what we're dealing with. Once you start to appreciate everybody's got something, it helps you get out of yourself a little bit. I think that's an important component for veterans that don't, that don't have many connections. They start to make connections with civilians. And then there's also the warrior ethos part where you're fighting, you're doing a combat sport. That's what you were trained to do was fight. And now you're with civilians who you think don't fight, but they're fighting too. And they're fighting you and they're probably kicking your ass if you're new. And it doesn't matter how good you were at fighting when you were in the military. Because in this sport, the way it's structured, unless you were already really experienced in hand-to-hand, -hand, there's a good chance that you're getting mopped up by a 150-pound 40-year-old dude, like Polly. <laughs> so um, 
there's another component to this. It's the trust deficit. And I've actually been told this before that learning that when you tap, the attack stops, helps you learn to trust. Because like we said, we already identified that the kid walking up to me that won't stop when I say stop and I'm pointing a weapon and he keeps advancing, that's a threat. I can't trust people. I can't make that attack stop without doing something catastrophic. I tap, the attack stops. I have control of that. That's important for veterans as they come back and, they, and they're trying to reacclimatize to, to life outside of combat. And then the last piece I think is achievement. And it's um, learning to do things that you didn't think you could do or that other people told you you couldn't do. And I already talked about how the VA, I have a lot of respect for um, the professionals there because I think by and large, despite some of the bad rap they get, I think they do a, a lot of them do a really good job. But there are veterans who come back and they're told, you won't be able to do this anymore. You won't be able to, you, your anxiety is so severe that you really are going to have a hard time doing A, B, and C. Where you're told that you're limited now. And even the process of um, filing, which I said is so important to file for your disabilities, there's a little bit of a, well, I'm not going to do that because I'm not, I'm not disabled. They're, they're, I'm, not, I'm not like that, you know. There's a barrier to asking for that, to, for that help. Once you accept it, what if you let it get into your head that, yeah, I really am disabled now. There really is only this much I can do because I lost a leg. I do have to be in a wheelchair. I do have severe PTSD, so I can't hold a job that I would have been able to hold otherwise. And it's these self-labels that we put into ourselves because we're listening to these outside voices. So the hashtag we use a lot and our saying with the foundation is prove them wrong. And it really is about proving those outside voices wrong. But there's another component to it. And that's, I think the achievement part is, it's the voice inside you that you have to prove wrong. Because we all have that, that says, don't compete. Don't, this is gonna be a horrible round. You can't do this. This isn't gonna be fun. That, that voice is only as important as you give it, right? That's where achievement comes in. That's the voice to prove wrong. You can achieve that. You can reclaim things that you thought were not there anymore. And that, those, so I put those five things together, and I'm sure there's other components, things that I didn't touch on, but that's why jujitsu works as a therapy. And not just for veterans, but for people like the average person who's a little bit messed up because everybody is. You know, you don't get to be 45 without having some kind of trauma in your life or maybe some way of relating to the world that's not optimum. And jujitsu uses those components to change you. It absolutely does that. Yeah, PTSD and trauma and physical disability aren't unique to the military. Right? No, not so, at all. Yeah, not at all. Everyone in the room has something, and some of them probably coming from the same perspective as you know the veterans that we're talking about. When I think that's that's the one that we I kind of hit on already. The understanding everyone has a story, yeah, and that you're not that different from everybody else. They might not understand exactly what you coped with. But um, there's something that they're dealing with that isn't that different in some ways. At least cognitively, the processes are going to be the same because we're all human. The experience that got them to their, that space 
might not be the same as yours, but the resultant identity crisis or whatever is probably pretty similar. Yeah, and I think, uh, so I, I really like trauma management, trauma therapy as, as a concept. Um, there was a concept, I already said this earlier, called moral injury, moral injury in the military that they're using a lot. I think the roots of it were kind of tied a little bit to PTSD. And again, this is this is me fr- freelancing a little bit here, freewheeling, because I'm not mm-hmm. an expert in this, but this is the way I've kind of put it together, where moral injury is a cognitive concept, but PTSD is cognitive and physical and a whole lot of other stuff. But it all comes down to trauma. And when a trauma happens and someone starts to have a maladaptive thought process in relation to that trauma, a lot of times it's because when you act in an event that is um, threatening you, we all have a lot of values. We value life. We value our loved ones. We might value a car. We would value um, music, arts, creativity, um, protecting kids. When you're in a traumatic environment or traumatic, it's just not just combat. Combat's an easy example, but there's plenty of them. Sometimes these values that we all hold dear, we can't honor all of them at once. You actually have to pick. And it's not a cognitive process. You know why? Because it's the fight or flight system that defines it. What's the number one priority that you have biologically? The number one that over everything else. Survival. Survival. Mm-hmm. It's the, it's, it, it dictates everything. So I use veterans or I, I use a veteran experience because it's the most obvious one. Where you're in a war, you have values that you come to the military with that cross a whole bunch of different things. But now you're in a war zone where there's certain rules there's norms of conduct, there's a way you're supposed to act, but then there's the moment and you have to survive. And sometimes you do stuff that makes sense in the moment to survive, but then when you take it out of context, it's harder to explain to people or to yourself. And one of the pro- one of the cognitive things we go through with cognitive dissonance, which is when your behaviors and your values or your are not aligned, you experience anxiety. That's cognitive dissonance. And you can have a great deal of that, especially when you come back. Because we don't always judge our conduct by what the situation was then. Sometimes we superimpose values that we have to deal with now on that conduct. And that's where a lot of cognitive dissonance comes in. And that's where that moral injury part comes in as people are trying to reconcile some horrible things that they had to experience and maybe actions that they had to take because they were trying to survive. And um, when I've done some research into trauma therapy, to me this concept's fascinating. Um, we have a hierarchy of values, and we can't honor all of them. This is an ethics, a lesson in ethics, really. You can't honor all of them at once. And sometimes we view things as either good or bad. This was a good action. This was a bad action. These are the outcomes, so clearly this was bad because this was the outcome. But when you're looking at trauma, that stuff doesn't apply as much. You have to you have to recognize we can't honor all our values. So sometimes the option that's the least bad is a highly moral action. So I think that's to me that's interesting because that's that's a conversation you would have with somebody, um, in maybe therapy and t- helping them reconcile some things. Which kind of brings me back to We Defy Foundation, because I was in a gym in Chicago. Uh, a couple years ago, uh, talking to a veteran in the in the locker room for like an hour and a half. He had just come back from Iraq. His marriage was failing. His wife had actually run off with his money. He was having trouble having a job. And we started to talk about this moral injury concept. 
and he said, and we talked for like an hour and a half. He said, what you just told me was no one's posed this to me before. And I think it's really helpful. So I think you should look for a way to get involved in helping veterans because you, you have some things that you understand that I think would help people. And that put the bug in me to figure out how am I going to do this? Cause I, I wanted to volunteer somewhere and that, that let me know, okay, this is okay to pursue. This is, this might be a worthy thing. And I found out about Weedify back when, do you know what TCI is? Have you heard of that? Twin Cities Invitational? Yeah. So they, they're a group of jujitsu practitioners here in town that, um, have been putting on some events that they always have a, a beneficiary, a charity beneficiary. So we defy foundation was uh, the beneficiary of that event. And this was about six months after that conversation. And so Alan that I talked about before, scary monster guy mm-hmm. was there and there was a seminar first. And then, um, a bunch of super fights afterward and the board, a couple of members of the board for we defy were fighting and they just, these are all like snake eating special operations, army guys that just, <laughs> mall people (laughs) so like watching these guys in the mats was was amazing and terrifying Uh, mission 22 was there and we defy was there and i i looked at them both like this is what i wanted to be this is what i want to do i want to be involved in that um and uh i looked at mission 22 and it, it was cool and i like what they do but it didn't touch me the way we defied it because it was it was jujitsu that's that's what i wanted to do we think about like butterfly effects and life and my friend Frank and this guy in the gym. What if TCI never existed? I never would have found We Defy Foundation. So those guys, like I started off as ambassador for We Defy and I've, I, I, I'm helping run the operations now. Like just the way we all interconnect in life, you never know which moment is going to be the one that creates the next thing. You know what? I, I love frazier yeah and you're right bro you're right man and like when potty mom was talking about that Mm -hmm. i was like oh my god (laughs) someone else likes somebody else likes that show (laughs) are we allowed to talk about it It like oh my god well like david hyde pierce niles is Mm -hmm. how do you cast him like because he's he's almost frazier but not but so i mean brilliant they look like they're brothers they i mean perfect the mannerisms nailed the the postures Amazing, and so that's one of those shows where they did such a good job over the years of consistently re- recycling the same joke. Like Maris, I think that was her name, right? The wife, Maris. Maris yeah. Um, and but God, it's so funny. Yeah. Um, and then the other one, my my other favorite show. I don't, I don't watch TV, but The Office is just. Yeah. I mean, the- I, if I can do a meme that like or a GIF that had Michael Scott in it, like that day was. A good day. Yeah. You know? I, I love, <laughs> yeah. I love being able to use those. And like I that, um, that's what she said. I, I, I try to use that phrase still. Yeah, every day. I at I, the most ridiculous time. Yeah, because I used yeah. that joke long before I ever heard of the office. Long before oh, yeah. it was Everybody a thing, <laughs> and then it became a thing, and he started saying it, so it was a bigger thing. Yeah, that's what she said. Yeah, and then the show <laughs> disappeared, and it's like ten years later, and we still that's what. Yeah, she and said. it's and yeah. it's still all, and that that'll always be with us. I mean, yeah. God, what a, what a great show. And Ed Helms, too, man. Like, he's a funny dude. And he's so talented, like, musically. He's like a Steve Martin kind of thing. Yeah, where, yeah. He's 
Apparently, Steve Martin's a big banjo star. He's in a bluegrass group. Who knew? Well, sure enough. Have you ever seen the um, uh, Hopeless Wanderer video for, uh, um, oh, my God. See? The band. It's a band. Why am I totally blanking on this right now? The people who did the song Hopeless Wanderer? <sighs> yeah. Li- the- little Lion Boy. Oh, oh, Mumford and Sons. Mumford and Sons. Mumford and Sons? Yeah. So no. this video... By Mumford and Sons, uh, it's the song is called Hopeless Wanderer. Okay, and you watch it, and it's got you know these four guys in it that are, you know, they got banjos and a piano yeah. and like these weird British rural country clothes, like yeah. they, you know what I mean, yeah, <laughs> like the whole thing. It's setting up this state, and you're like, fine, that's that's okay. It's going to be another Mum, you know, Mumford and Sons, and they're great music, but you know, it's going to be another one of these videos. And yes. you watch it for about the first forty-five seconds, and all of a sudden you get a close-up of half of one guy's face. And you're like. That's that's Jason Bateman. Oh. And then you you're watching a little longer and you're kinda like, that's weird. And then it but it's a little over the top too. It's not just like Mumford and Sons with stuff, but it's it's mocking them. It's satir satir satirizing. Yeah, that one. Where it's everything's just a little bit over the top and you're kinda like, This is almost weird what they're doing. Then you realize later on, like, oh, that's Ed Helms playing piano. Yeah. And as the video just gets funnier and funnier and it goes completely off the rails sure, by sure. the end. It is, it is absolutely brilliant. And I, when people come over, I like to have music on, like videos. Mm-hmm. And that's one that I'll throw on when people are sort of paying attention. Yeah, yeah. Because there's always one dude that's like, he'll be like, hey, yeah, wait yeah. a minute. Yeah, yeah. It's a great. I'm surprised video. I haven't seen that. I'm oh, it's so that. good. But Ed Helms in it. I, mean, I think he's my spirit animal. He's just, <laughs> he is so funny. He's just great. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, from The Hangover, man. Yeah. I mean that that was a solid performance oh, all across yeah. the board, but definitely. I look like a nerdy hillbilly. <laughs> it's the second time I've said this on this podcast. He is. He's just really talented he's a wonderful yeah. musician too yeah, I mean, yeah. and the way he nails andy in that show with the just the, like the completely awkward musical <laughs> thrown in the you know just every character Cornell on that show except jim and pam are a complete train wreck and that's the fun part because i think when we watch that show we're like hey we're we think of ourselves as almost like hey we would be jim and pam maybe because they're the relatable characters yeah and everybody else is a freaky nightmare i would definitely be kevin i, <laughs> I just yeah you're a skinny kevin i'm a regular kevin i feel like someone from corporate could could assume that i'm i'm here as part of a program <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> one tactic i'm employing here is setting the whiskey glass down in between sips so far, it's helping. That's would slow it down, I would think. Yeah, yeah, it's helping. That's good. Part of the asking for help bit, it's, is it a weird thought of mine? I don't think it is. I'm trying to pose this as a question. I'm just going to do what I normally do and state something and let you reply. <laughs> uh, once you do cross the threshold of asking for help and getting, in, particularly through Weedify, getting involved in jujitsu. It's n- like by definition something you cannot do on your own as a self-reliant thing. I can't practice jujitsu without someone else. Yeah, I'm forced to embrace the community, but I'm also forced to connect. Well, I th- yeah, I th- that's a brilliant insight to it. You can't you can't practice it. You, I mean, you no. can pretend to practice it by yourself, but well, you 
what did I do in lockdown? I bought a dummy and I got some mats from Jeremy Clark, yeah. um, which was awesome that he let me take some home. And that was, that made me feel good about what, that. I was able to do something that I felt like was progress. Sure. But it didn't replace relationships. Yeah, you're alone in your base. Yeah, you're alone. It's what, you know, you can feel good about your effort, but you can't feel good about missing your, your, your friends, your people, you know, that the gym, that, what good is an arm bar without a friend to do it to? <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, because the dummy doesn't really care. You know, It's not the same. Yeah. But that's a really good point. Which of the five categories has been most important for you personally? <sighs> and maybe it's shifted. Maybe it's evolved. I think the um, um, the first one. Fitness? the was that, was the, that the fitness and the mental yeah, yeah. the men, but the mental health aspect of not the fitness part as much as wellness the wellness what it does how it when we have maladaptive thoughts when we have challenges in our lives where it lets me reset and it, it stops that thinking and I, dude like you learn stuff in jujitsu but you don't learn it like you got to get your face beat into the wall over and over and over. And I think like a, a great example of that is um, so I am super competitive. And that's partly because of my job when I was a fighter pilot. Because that in that community, you're good friends and you're not going to hurt each other's career advancement intentionally, but it is cutthroat. And you are ranked from day one against all your peers. And even at the Air Force Academy, which is where I went for college, like the number one grad gets the job they want. Number two gets whatever's left. And three and four and 800 and 947. And 1,023 gets, like, you know, Mr. Irrelevant in the draft, in the NFL draft, right? That's the guy that gets what everybody else didn't want. It's kind of the outcome is fairly commensurate with your ranking yeah there's not a lot of game playing no like, yeah. it's and that doesn't stop when you graduate from the air force academy that continues all the way through and you're in a fighter squadron you're constantly ranked against your peers all the time you're always getting graded you're always being evaluated and when i left the f-16 community i was devastated because i didn't want to leave when it was time for me to go to another assignment, I flew. Ba I basically did a training assignment, two more assignments in the F-16. And then uh, when it was time for me, there were 10 of us, and we were all ranked. And um, I wanted an F-16, but there were only three. And there were usually more than that. And that was, that was devastating for me. And I ended up getting a, a job assigned to me to be an instructor pilot. And I wanted to teach, and I thought that would be cool, but I wanted to do it in a fighter. And the T-38 is still a, it's a fighter trainer, but it's not a fighter. And I was lucky in a way because the bottom half of that list, this was when they were using fighter pilots as the first drone pilots. Nobody wanted a drone because you're not flying. 
you're sitting in a cubicle or whatever, however they have them set up. You know what yeah. I mean? That's what it feels like. You know what I mean? That you may as well be sitting behind a desk in a cubicle compared might, to yeah, compared flying. to what what you're doing yeah. in a fighter. You know what I mean? So, um, that's what that's what I think the perception was, and I was lucky that I got a fighter. But I mean that I got a, an instructor job. But that's not what I wanted. So your rank, how you did, mattered. I spent the first couple of years of jujitsu internally just tearing myself apart when I would not get the results I wanted. And it wasn't so much in terms of competition, but it was very much belts. And this is like, I'll tell this story. And I don't hear a lot of, I don't hear people talk about it that much, but I'm going to say it anyway, because it, it doesn't reflect a good light on me. It's, but it's honest. I was motivated by stripes and belts and where, why didn't I get it yet? What am I doing wrong? And how do I do it better? And, and, you know, I'm winning competitions. Why is this not happening? Um, why is this happening slow? And that, to me, was absolutely a reflection of the the culture I had come from. Yeah, you were conditioned for focus on metrics like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, why do you think that reflects poorly on you? Because I, as far as the, I think... We say the ideal jujitsu practitioner doesn't care, but and yet we all we use all, stripes and belts. We all care because we I all just think care not everybody that. will talk about it because they don't want to be looked at like that dude's a douche, which is the thing that I am opening myself up to yeah. right now. Well, <laughs> but if I mean if it's so. if it's the meaningful measure for people to use to have some sense of their improvement, then it matters. Yeah, I think. There's a certain percentage bullshit when people say, I don't really care about the belt thing. I'm just trying to get better. Well, okay, this is presumably your instructor's measurement of you getting better. Yeah. So quit, yeah. quit bullshitting me. Even if it's 20%, 30%, you give a shit because it yeah. matters. And I don't I don't think anyone's talked about this on this podcast yet, have they? This concept? This hasn't yeah, come up too, has too much? A few people have has talked come up about, a little bit? about okay. you know, whether or not you know, they were worried about it and this and that, but not 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 in great depth, no. Okay, because I, I think it's worth it to talk about it. Yeah, like I, said, I, I think I think yeah. I'm, w- uh, I'm of the, the mindset that, it's it's like receiving a grade. Yeah. Did did I understand the stuff? Cool. I got a good grade and or a pass fail. Let's say that means I've I've improved. I well, you know. And he, here's here's why. So my old community, and I don't want to be melodramatic because it, it could sound that way, but this is true. You passed and you lived. You failed. You died. Sure. So this is a different activity because that's not quite. I mean, it, it still could apply. I mean, you get choked out, you're dead, but you're not because you're tapping because it's a healthy environment right. <laughs> where we're not actually murdering people. It's not a, not as much of a zero sum game. Yeah, as, for as sure. The other one could be. Yeah. yeah. But that was, I mean, the stakes were high. And I've, I've said this, this component a lot of times. I would have been a better fighter pilot if I had done jujitsu before I was a fighter pilot. So mil- I'm not indicting the military by saying this. Um, the military does a lot of things great, but they don't teach you how to deal with failure at all. It's, it's, I think it's a missed opportunity. Um, because I spend a lot of time judging myself and comparing myself to other pilots and how they were doing, especially in pilot training, which is the hardest year of my life. But, you know, some guys are really good at different aspects of flying, but nobody's good at all of them all the time, except for, like, one dude who's a dick. But, you know, like, nobody, yeah. that's not realistic, yeah. right? Um, but sometimes we forget that. It's really easy. Well, that guy is really, really good at dogfighting. 
and you might suck at dropping bombs and you might be really good at dropping bombs, but you're not actually worried about that part because you see the deficiency and you're afraid that you're going to be ranked on that and that's going to affect your career. So I came into jujitsu with kind of that mentality. Um, and that really, really got me a lot. I think uh, middle of blue belt, especially. And I remember when they, with the, when Zach got his black belt, I came to M theory and everybody was at M theory and there was like 742 people. <laughs> there was a busy mat that day yeah. for sure. I and didn't I, even, I didn't even do any of the drilling cause I was week one. So I'm like, I'm just going to get off the mat, yeah. get out of the way, you know, and let <laughs> these folks enjoy this. When I, I've been to M three, you know, a number of times, mostly for competition training. And, um, I've taken some classes there too. And I got lined up with everybody. And I think there were two lines in front and then the middle line and two right lines in back. And I looked to my left where the, where there were, you know, two stripe belt, blue belts like me and less into the white belts. Like, damn, that's a lot of people behind me. And I looked to the right <laughs> and I was like, shit, I am nothing in this room. And, um, I fought that thought afterwards for a long time. Like, no, I ha I, that's not true. Like, no, and I always come back to it. No, you really are. You're nothing. And, um, in jujitsu. And that was a lesson I had to learn. And it, I'm probably still going to learn it every day a little bit. I'm better at it now than I was two years ago. That was a hard lesson. And it, really only came from getting my face. It's like, how many times am I going to do this to myself? Well, a lot. I'm going to keep judging myself on it and I'm going to keep getting pissed off about my progress and frustrated. And then you can, um, it was either, I think it either John grill said this or Teddy Roosevelt did. I can't remember which, who said it. Um, 50, 50, give or yeah. take. Yeah. Comparison is the thief of joy. And now you take, um, COVID and the year we lost. And a lot of us still got to train in different capacities. Some people in the gym, some people less in the gym, some people in murder pods, which I got to be in for a little while, which is super cool. <laughs> it was a lot of fun um, with Oleg, who Oof. if your training partner is a guy named Oleg, <laughs> I don't think it matters who the Oleg actually is. If it's yeah. an Oleg, you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, coming back now on the back end of COVID and getting back into the gym in a more normal environment. Um, I used to feel like I have to find a way to be relevant in this room. I have to find a way to matter. And I would only, I still hold that statement to be true except for one word relevant. I only have to be in this room. That's it. And I'm so happy to be back in that room. Totally. You want to know how you get relevant? How? Start a stupid fucking podcast. <laughs> <laughs> As it turns out, the, your, your base point that you started with there is actually something I was just talking about on a previous episode of this. Um, and I think I said either an analogous statement to what you said or almost identical sentence, which was, one of the better things you can be good at in life is failing, right? Yeah. And I think that's the base of everything you're just talking about because yeah. on top of that, you, you start stacking layers like, okay, I'm not improving or I'm improving too slow and all those extra layers of bullshit we'll let get in our head to affect our sense of self in the yeah. room, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think um, I said it before. Military doesn't teach you to deal with failure. Yeah. It's because the stakes are high. Right. Failure but they really means should. something heavy. It's heavy. But it doesn't. It should still be. You should still be taught how to use it as a tool. And we did debrief all of our flights. I mean, we to the man. You wouldn't. I mean, the level of detail we would go on to because the, we wanted to be perfect. It was an unrealistic standard, but that's what the goal was every time because the last thing you want to do is kill the wrong person. And you've got thousands of pounds of bombs on your airplane and you send something in the wrong place, you're going to hurt a lot of people. And they might be civilians or they might be friendlies. And that's devastating. But I spent a lot of time when I did mess up or I did fail in training in the military, burning brain cells and capacity on beating myself up and less on using it as a tool to improve. And I found myself doing that early on in jujitsu too, but jujitsu is an environment where we fail so much and it's not abhorrent in the military. It's abhorrent. It's not okay. Your career ends if you have a failure a lot of times, or at least it feels that way. Well, I guess that's what I mean by, you know, get good at failing. Yeah. You know, yeah. T- take the, take the lesson yep. thing, you know, I mean, use it as a tool. Yeah. Really learn from it. Um, and you do that and you just do over, over and over. And, uh, that's why I say like you learn it in the grind. You don't learn it as a light bulb moment. You eventually, I think, come to these realizations as you go. Like a lot, like the realization that I got to pee really bad. Yeah. You in after you. Well, there's multiple bathrooms. Here. We're okay. <laughs> um, how's the mission of all of this and the ins and outs of all this? Uh, f- f- Give me the weird of five perspective on the 2020 thing. Okay, so when it hit, um, we, I had taken over the ambassador program, which is our volunteer network. And then I had taken over the relationship with the gym. So I just, over time I just accumulated more and more responsibility because I I had the time with my career as an airline pilot. I have a lot of free time and a very flexible schedule. So I was able to start doing different kinds of things. And then I, I saw, okay, we, we have some opportunities here with the, the athlete part where the schedule, the scholarships are actually, um, given in that and coordinated. And, I looked at the wait list we had because uh, I think one of the challenges with running a nonprofit and trying to take care of people is sometimes you have to know when you are at a limit of your resources, but you don't want to say no because by saying no, you're not helping people. Um, and I took an opportunity when I, when I came onto that part to say, you know what? we would be better served to people if we could have them apply and then start on the mats within maybe three months. Because at the time, the wait list for our resource base, which was five athletes per month, was about a year out. And um, we agreed to make the decision to shut down the application and to work through that queue. Because we felt, even though we would have to say no to people now, it would mean that we were going to be giving people a better product later. And that was in February. And then COVID. And we were like, shit, now what? 
So we didn't place anyone for two months. And we were trying to figure out how we, how are we going to do fundraising? So I even had one day where I posted on Facebook locally. I'm like, I got a, a box of gear that we would use at events. Well, we don't have any events right now. So I will run them around Minneapolis on the weekends. You just tell me what you want and I'll bring it to you with my mask on and whatever. I figured out within the state rules that that was permissible to go do that with how they were allowing certain kinds of transactions. And we, I mean, that's what we, the kind of lengths we were going to. Um, but the money kept coming in. People kept donating. And in the states that were open, we were able to have fundraisers. And we ended up having a better year in 2020 um, under certain metrics than we ever had before. And we only put 53 people into scholarships instead of 60 like 2019. But it wasn't because of the funding. It was because gyms were closed. And I think that that success that we had in fundraising speaks to the strength of our ambassador network and we're still a young organization and we're kind of sometimes we're flying the airplane while we're building it on this thing as we get more people and we have more skill sets that join us we find that we have more capabilities and there's greater things we can do like for example when the gyms were closing i monitoring this athlete program and watching all these scholarships now we've got gyms closing we want to pay the gyms for a year and the athletes for a year and how do we make sure that the this gym isn't closed but this one in california it can't operate at all because california is really strict but in texas this is open how am i going to be able to track all that so then we said why don't we have ambassadors help us we made a little team called the athlete engagement team and the idea was for them to contact the athlete or the gym say, hey, this is how long they were closed. This is how long they're going to tack on on the end. If you want us to us to pay you right now while you're closed, we will do that. Because without those businesses, small businesses, we're, we can't do this. We, we don't pull it off without those partners, right? So we made the decision as a board, we're going to keep paying gyms that want to be paid to the tiny amount. I mean, this, it's one, one membership, right? Maybe it helps them keep the lights on. Um, it was directly in line with our values. So that's why we did it. And then when the payments would stop at 12 months, we'd ask that they would tack on whatever was missed for the athlete. Um, what started happening with this athlete engagement team is that although it was meant to be a simply a conduit of information, the ambassadors started to build relationships with these veterans who we'd placed in gyms to be part of their community. And we started doing Zooms. And we started building this group identity almost by accident. But when we recognized what was happening, then we, we went all in on it. And now we did these guys, these ambassadors are mentors and every new athlete gets a mentor. That's not something we did a year ago. That was an opportunity that came up because of COVID. And I think that's, that's a mark of a um, strong organization and a successful organization. When you take, setbacks and find ways to uh, prosecute or, or execute advantages when they occur. You take the opportunities you're given. And um, we're in right now coming out of COVID. I mean, we're, we, our treasurer last month said we can double the number of athletes we're putting through a month. So instead of doing five, now we're doing 10. And that happened because of the, our volunteers that have that same passion. Um, and it's unbelievable what we, what we've been able to do. And now 
Right now, our application is open. It opened last week because our queue is empty. And now we're accepting applications. For We're going to take 30 of them, and then we're going to close it again to get those three months' worth of uh, athletes into gyms. And then when we clear through that, we're going to open it again, and then we're going to close it again. And I'd like to keep it open. You know, you'd like it to be a certain way where you can keep it open all the time, and just but then you acquire this list, and you can't service people. I firmly, firmly believe that. Um, one of the challenges is sometimes you have to say no now, but you're actually doing a better service by doing so, by not overextending, and by keeping your uh, responsibilities that are truly commensurate with your uh, capabilities and your resources. Well, and you get to say yes later. You get to say yeah, to more, to more anyway. people. Yeah. 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 In a better fashion. Sure. Because if a guy sits on a waiting list for a year, we're yeah. not really we're not helping him yet. We're not helping him until they're in the gym. Right. And that's as the goal. A, as a weird intermediary of sitting and hoping going yeah. on. Yeah. So, I mean, some of these people are going to start April 1st. So I say three months. Some of them will be right away. Yeah, that's good. That's cool that, you know, the silver linings type of thing. Yeah, and but, we we were as shell-shocked as everybody else was March and April. Like, what are we going to do? Yeah. How are we going to get through this? And... We're not, it didn't matter to us to put food on the table. We're all, almost all of us are volunteers. We have three individuals out of the 150 of us that are contracted for certain professional services. And we have one that I'm aware of one, um, it's called the foundation group. They help us with regulatory stuff because there's a lot of, there's a lot of red tape that we do not have the time or the expertise. That's why they're there. And we're too small. We don't have a staff. We, we'd have to pay somebody to do it. Right. Everybody else is a volunteer. Yeah. And those volunteers are what kept 2020, you know, from d- potentially destroying us. So tell me what an ambassador does previous to February, 2020. Mostly fundraising, um, having booths at like, um, I got to tell you, grappling industries, those guys have been phenomenal for us. They let us have, um, booths for free. We just show up anywhere that they have a tournament and bring our gear and set up. And they let us do that. And that model, when we started doing that, like a year and a half ago, we, we didn't know how to do it. We were just figuring it out. And they let us experiment and figure it out. And we were lucky if we raised $200 at a booth like that. Now we do a thousand because we've gotten better at it, and it's because of them. Right. Um, Fuji tournaments uh, in the southeast, their their management's a little different. They have franchises. And Timothy Morthland is a guy that runs it out in the, the southeast of the country. He started letting us go for free, and he's been incredibly supportive. I can't say enough about, about him. And then Seth, too, with Fight to Win. He's been uh, an active supporter and helper for a lot of the things that this foundation has done since it was founded a couple years ago. Um, and we have a really good relationship with him. Um, and that, those kinds of functions are what the ambassadors mostly did. Um, at the time there was probably maybe about a hundred, I would guess ambassadors total. And that was the focus was fundraising. But then as we grew, I started to see that there was trust that we could place on these people to handle tasks that needed to be done. Um, that would help us do a better job at what we were doing. So then we put together a design team 
that designs our gear. And then we put together a development team that helps plan bigger events like galas. And now they're going to start going after grants and things like that. And then the engagement team, like I said, that acts as mentors. So we've actually got about five or six functional teams now with ambassadors that wanted to take on a little more responsibility. Some of it's administrative. I mean, that's, it's, we couldn't, we couldn't do what we do without them. If we were going to try, we'd be paying a lot of money for professional services. So 84% of our expenditures in 2019 went to the scholarships. Our goal is for 75% to do that, which in and of itself for nonprofit is phenomenal. I was going to say if, if other nonprofits would hold themselves to a standard even close to that, yeah. they'd be a lot happier with what I hear about them. Yeah, and I, I don't need the, the – we don't need I – don't, I don't need money. I have, a, I have a great job that I love. I don't want money for this, but I need to do it. If I, jujitsu, this nonprofit, and my airline job all work together really well because I have flexibility. I can throw a gi in my bag and meet people. I can fly anywhere in the world I want at the drop of a hat for free. That's a benefit of this job. It all pairs up really, really well. I don't need to be compensated. Um, I would say when, when I was a fighter pilot, I know we talk about service in the military, obviously I would did that for me. I wanted to be a fighter pilot. I'm doing weedify for other people. And it's, it's the most important thing that I've ever done for sure. In terms of the greater impact and uh, positively affecting other yeah. people's lives. Yeah. Because you know, when you're in the military, you feel like you're a part of something and you know, you're doing something good but what i'm doing now i I never i've never seen the results of my actions like i see with weedify because of the stories i hear from the people we sponsor and their families and their wives and their husbands and their kids the neighbors yeah i mean it's (laughs) (laughs) on and on and on yeah it's 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 real and we we all we get to see it so how does somebody become an ambassador for weedify um, really, they all they have to do is email um, our foundation. The info at wedefyfoundation.org email comes right to me and a couple of board members. And then from there, we any inc- any requests we get in terms of um, the uh, ambassadors, anyone who wants to be sponsored, even if the application's closed, the gyms that want to partner, we I basically distribute those emails to the right party. Most of them being ambassadors that then get in sure. contact with people and build the team. So that's why when I ordered this shirt last week, I got a text from you saying yeah, thanks, thanks for buying the shirt. <laughs> yep. Because <laughs> I see every transaction that yeah. comes across. Yeah. Yeah. What else am I supposed to ask you about Weedify? What else are you supposed to say? That's mostly Weedify things. You compete in jujitsu? Yeah. I how do. Many, how many times have you competed? Do you know? Twenty one. Twenty one competitions. I thought you were joking at nope. first. It's a very specific number, but you know yep. it, huh? Yeah, I know it. Okay. Tell me about it. When's the first time you competed? Were you a white belt? When it was you a white belt. Yeah. Six months at Sub Hunt, I think, that I think was put on by the Academy back then. Sure. Um. And, uh, yeah, it was a novice category, and I won 10 to nothing. And I didn't have a rash guard, didn't have cool clothes yet. I was just – actually, so I started – I left active duty in 2010 and I joined the Air Force Reserves to continue to fly that instructor pilot.
pilot airplane, mm-hmm. which was an awesome job. As much as I was not happy about having to sure, go there, yeah, yeah. it was phenomenal. And it, it changed the trajectory of my life because um, I wouldn't be here now if I hadn't gotten that job. If I had stayed in the F-16, I would have had a different right, a yeah, different life. Yeah. Um, so Lifetime Fitness down in Lakeville, we joined there because my wife plays tennis, and they had an MMA room. So I... Uh, decided that looked fun. It, they had MMA conditioning classes for free with your membership. So I got into that first in basically probably 2012. And as I did that, it was basically striking. There really wasn't much grappling in it at all. Um, it was, it was, it would not have been partner grapple. It was all pad work, but I wanted to get more serious about it and I wanted to start sparring. But then my FA flight doc said, I told him, Hey, what do you think about this? He's like, you're an idiot. <laughs> Is that what he said? Actually, the dude's awesome. He's uh, He used to be on the um, state fight commission as the pre- and post-fight medical examiner. Oh. He said, he's like, yeah, you don't want to be, you don't want to get hit. He's like, that's if you were an accountant or an engineer, I'd say absolutely go do it. With your, your career, getting hits, it's not, that's not a good, you don't want to do that. So I would not recommend it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I also don't want my accountant being legend in the head either but <laughs> i see his point i see the, <laughs> i see the distinction I guess. yeah so i told my coaches there and like what do you think about well why don't you try jujitsu it's like it's it's a lot different i mean you, you can be competitive in it and the um the catastrophic injury risk is, is lower you know and i was like that looks terrible i don't i don't want to do that i want to hit stuff hitting stuff is fun um but they talked me into trying it and um i started classes in july of 2015 and then in december of 2015 i did my first competition and that was the that one one match against one guy who was also old and skinny and small <laughs> and i basically got on top and stayed there the whole time and didn't really know how to choke him or do anything else from there because it was all nogi and it was an unranked program so that i had one one division yeah and that was my first competition Tell me about your favorite competition. That would have been my last one. And that was um, in January of 2020. I took my son to Cleveland because that's where I grew up. And we go see my dad sometimes. And there was a grappling industries competition there. So we were there for probably 72 hours, maybe less. And I wanted to go so my dad could see what I was doing because he clearly – I was pretty into it. And my sister's boyfriend, who is now her husband, was in the army. So he had been following the We Defy stuff. And uh, I, had, I hadn't met him yet. So we met. We hung out. We had a lot of fun. He had a T-shirt. We, he warmed me up on the mats. But way bigger than I am. But it was, it was fun getting to spend that kind of time with him. And then I competed. And um, I, I won all the matches and won the gold. And my dad and kid were both there. And I'll never forget, this is why it was so important or why it meant so much to me. Right as they were about to hold my hand up, because I didn't want to act like, you know, like <laughs> act like you've been there, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So, and I had, you know, I I've could competed a lot by that time. My kid, my six-year-old kid yells, Daddy! And I looked over and he had this giant smile on, my, on his face and he gave me a thumbs up. And I laughed and smiled and I felt like kind of like this was, that wasn't what I, I couldn't contain it because like he gets it. That's why I brought him here. So that was my, 
that's the one that means the most. Um, and then a close second would probably be fight to win because the first time they came to Minneapolis, first of all, I love the stage. I've been a lead singer in bands. Um, when you're a pilot, you brief people all the time. You're up in front of groups of 200 people sometimes or so, whatever, however many it is. The Air Force Academy teaches you to be comfortable in that atmosphere. So I, I love the spotlight. And the first time Fight to Win came, I was like, I want to do that. Because where else would you get your, your like an MMA-style walk-in? But you're just doing jiu-jitsu. Like, there's nowhere else that does that. That's something brilliant that Seth has done. He built that model. And it gets it allows people... Sure, they bring in great talent sometimes for the headlining matches. But guess who else gets to be showcased? An average 5'7", 160-pound, 40-plus-year-old dude that has no business being <laughs> showcased. Sure, sure. But you get to do it. Yeah. And... um. I was like, man, I hope someday I get a belt rank that will allow me to to do that. And then sure enough, two years later, they need they expanded their cards. So they were looking for blue belts. And so I applied for it. And then um, so Chris alluded to this in an earlier podcast. Mm-hmm. Chris is my best friend. And um, he is chaos. And I am order. And I don't know how many times he said, I don't know how we're even friends. Because we approach things from... 180 degrees out and I, there's I don't know anyone that I have more fun with um so I as I'm thinking about walkouts like I, I don't I leave nothing to chance ever like I prepare for stuff I practice I think about stuff so when I was thinking about what would I do for a walkout song and like you know I thought about all these songs I like I had a playlist on my computer of walkout possible walkout songs like you know <laughs> I had this idea one day like I could throw on my flight suit and walk out to Danger Zone from Top Gun. And I texted <laughs> texted Chris. I'm like, Chris, should I walk out to Danger Zone and in giant flaming, you know, explosions on the whatever? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm, of course. <laughs> so I did that. And so I practiced it and I, I sent him like some pictures and stuff. He's like, You're an idiot. What? <laughs> you're, you're taking he was laughing. You're taking this so serious. Like, well, that's what I do. <laughs> yeah. And then I almost I almost didn't do it at the last minute. Why not? Um, I was. It was probably the. I would say the end of the first third of the card, maybe, and the the crowd was still kind of quiet. There hadn't been any like really bomb walkouts yet, like just awesome ones. And I had my helmet with me. I had all, all the gear. I had the Weta. Marcus was going to carry the Weta fly flag out. And like, man, I don't know. It's pretty quiet in there, and. I, that's I, how you turn the volume up is you show up in a flight suit and i didn't know if i was going to be able to do it and kind yeah. of st- i'm standing there i'm kind of like all right if i'm going to do this i have to sell it and if it goes bad then you know what i've looked like an idiot before so and i walk out of the doors to the kind of the the bullpen or whatever and there's ishmael and he looks at me he goes is that is that your your flight suit and I, I said, yeah. And he just explode, like just laughing at me, like the good kind of laugh. Yeah, like, yeah. okay, this might work. Yeah. Um, so I get out there and, uh, the, the previous fights over. 
Seth does the introduction. And it felt like there was a pause between the beginning and the music. And like, I, I don't know if it was a technical difficulty, but it was like the longest 0.75 seconds of my entire life waiting. Yeah, Cause I'm yeah. like, I don't know how this is going to go down. <laughs> and the music starts and I walk, I started to walk up and the place went bonkers. Yeah. And everyone recognizes, everyone song. knows the song and people like there's enough people in the local community. Cause I get to go to a couple different gyms. I have friends in a lot of gyms, so they know me. So they get that. And that's what made it fun. Cause it's your friends. It's not, you're not some random place where these, these are fans of some guy. These are your, these are your people and they're excited to see you and they would be just as excited to see anybody else in that room get up on that stage. And that's, what's so awesome about fight to win and what Seth has created. Cause you don't have to be important. You don't have to be special to get it up on that stage. All you got to do is be in the room and you get to be important. You get to be you important to be special. for yeah. a, a walkout plus five minutes <laughs> <laughs> if it takes that long. <laughs> How'd the five minutes go? Um, it was, it was, oh my God, it was so much fun. I was so pumped up and um, it went really well. Um, I got the takedown that I'd been working on for a while. That's um, a win right there. Yeah. That's, yeah. And I, that's my game is I, I'm not a guard puller. Um, I see great utility in being good at pulling guard, especially um, tactically speaking. If you know you're up against a wrestler, like if I'm going up against a wrestler, my takedowns are pretty decent against a non-wrestler. I'm going to get my ass kicked trying to take down a wrestler. Yeah. So if I had a guard pull game, that would be when to use it. And there's some gyms or some programs like, you know, we don't pull guard here. There is absolutely a utility in it if you want to cultivate that as part of your game. I don't yet. I don't know that I, if I will or not because my mentality is attack, attack, attack. Um, but anyway, that's that's how I approach that. So I got the takedown, got into half guard, and um, I couldn't get out of half guard for much of the match. And then I, I tried to put a Dars on, and the whole time I hear Marcus yelling at me like, pass his guard, like <laughs> pass his guard. And I'm just sitting here in half guard trying to wrench on this Dars. Yeah. And guess what? A Darth doesn't work if you're in half guard. <laughs> yeah. It turns out. It turns out, yeah. The coaches knew what they were talking about. Eventually, I got to his back um, and then fought there for like a minute. And somebody brought this up. I don't know who the other – Chris was one of the commentators, and the other one um, mentioned this during words. If you're in the going to the back, transitioning to the back is the best time to get the neck because if you don't get the neck until after that transition's completed it's much harder to get the neck. So for a minute and a half we're battling over his neck. Cuz all I'm thinking if you're on my back is protect the neck. Yeah. So right? if you can if you can make part of that back take, part of that transition being get the neck, all that work is done. Otherwise you're focused on it. And um I did finally get the tap with 7 seconds left. And um it was so fun and i've watched the video um actually fun fact it is the second most watched video from that fight to win nice the first one is potty mom and uh Joao. Joao, yeah and i was the second most and that's because i keep watching it on flow grappling yeah. in my basement <laughs> it's like how i keep re-downloading my own podcast <laughs> yeah. to, to, look to at this <laughs> look at these hits <laughs> Put up a post said uh, Marcus's episode is almost at three hundred, and then I went and downloaded it again, and oh, that's at three hundred. But you know, it's it's cool because like the final shot of that is Marcus, like it's it's me standing up. Marcus is 
in the camera just pounding on the mat and Jeremy Clark is in the background with these yeah, arms yeah. raised and so I got to see my team and my people from that angle and that means a ton and to see Jeremy back there Jeremy's seen me at my best and at my worst cuz when I when I won Nogi Worlds he was there in LA working with the Kings but he got the day off and he came and watched us compete and he got to watch all of us that day and Sebastian and Zach and we all did really well and that meant a lot to me to have the owner of the gym there that day and then to see him in that moment excited for me but he's coached me through matches before too and I've had tournaments where I was just destroyed and he was my coach so he's seen me at both ends of it Mm -hmm. um and he is an amazing, amazing person. Like you walk in MTT for the first time, and he, if somebody new walks into the gym, he could be in the back room in the corner, and he he just feels it, and he walks to the door, and that person becomes the most important person in the building. And that's how I felt the first day I showed up there, and it's genuine, because he that's who he is. He's not selling you like, no. yep, you should join my gym. That's, nope. just, that's just how he is. He said, hey, I don't care where you trained before. I don't care what your background is, how much experience you have. You're welcome here. I'd love to have you on our mats whenever you want to be here. You don't have to sign up. You can do it however you want. I, he just, he, but he's so personable. And, um, yeah, he's, he's phenomenal. And, I, you know, I, I started at Lakeville Lifetime Fitness. I moved to Next Level Combat because I wanted to start to learn in the gi, and I wanted to have an opportunity to train on the road, so I needed to learn how to do gi. That place closed, and I was looking for another gym. I found MTT. Um, and I kind of I, ma- I made that decision there to go there because of Zach. Because um, at the time, he was still a brown belt. And I had trained with Joao and Jose, who are phenomenal people. And what they have at Rio is incredible and the culture they have there they are two of the best human beings i've ever met and um i would never think twice about sending a friend to go to that program but joao didn't have rio yet when this all went down so i followed jose kind of to mtt because he was teaching there for a Mm -hmm. while but all these other people they were already black belts they were already there and I know you're like, no, it's your first day of, you know, you're learning the bullshit. You know, you, you get to the black belt, you know what I mean? Yeah. There's, it's, you've accomplished a, a thing that everyone else is trying to get to. You're far, you're closer to the quote unquote finish than you are the starting line, which is yeah. where you're at, you know? Yeah. So, um, I chose Zach as the person I wanted to follow at that time because he was still a brown belt. And I saw all these other guys who were amazing to me and wonderful people, but Zach was still in a process and I needed to watch somebody so I could learn what's the process. So that's what I did. I attached myself to Zach so I could figure out how do I get there someday. And it wasn't a reflection on any of the other black belts or instructors because I I love those people. Um, And I, Joao still coaches me at competitions. And the first person to congratulate me when I won uh, Worlds was Joao. 
and I was already an MTT. Like he didn't care. Yeah. You know, um, it was because I, I saw someone who was excellent that could teach me how to be, uh, how, how to get there. That's why the biggest reason I picked Zach, but like Rio MTT M3, like these gyms that I get to go to are, they're, they're all incredible and they, they want everybody to be there. You know, there's no ego between schools. I don't think I haven't seen it in, in those, at least those three. It's all about jujitsu and about being together. Well, and the, uh, the thing about like the relationship you built with Joao, um, or obviously have with any number of other people kind of going beyond our actual transactional connection yeah. Yeah. is probably a big chunk of why we defy works. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, it's, you, it's you that bring somebody into the community thing and whatever develops there is going to continue beyond, okay, I'm not at that gym anymore. Or I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's, that's a huge point is to be part of a community and to recognize that we're, we're all in this together and to defeat that isolation. The only way you do that is with other people. And if you can keep the politics out of it or the, affiliation stuff out like of it allegiances yeah. you know yeah. let your allegiance be to the people not the space or the gym yeah. name or whatever yeah and that's i mean i think something that's amazing about rio because i get i do train there still um from i haven't because of covid but you know yeah. normal life i i go there it's five minutes from my house you know now the the location so um joao believes in everybody and Jose does too. And they make you believe in yourself. Like, like when Joao came up to me after that, that win, he hugged me and he said, I knew you were going to win today. No, you didn't. He goes, yeah, I knew. Like, how'd you know? Come on, dude. There was like, no. And he goes, I just knew. He makes you believe in yourself. That's just what he does. And And Jose, like, He's this Jose works you hard and you don't, you have to earn it for him in, in a way that's just his personality. And if you're screwing it up, you're going to know. Cause he's kind of like, he, he just, he lets you know. <laughs> um, I think everybody understands what you're saying there. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's been on the receiving yeah. end of that. <laughs> but those two guys, like what they have, that culture they have at that gym, I, I think it's worth talking about because, um, you know, this is a, this is so awesome that it's mostly M theory and MTT in this family, but that real family is something special sure, yeah. too. It's a jujitsu. It's jujitsu. Yeah. 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 And, um, I'm thankful that we're in a position to be able to learn from all these guys. And Ishmael has said this too. What kind of instructor would I be if I didn't let my guys learn from other black belts? Yeah. And that's such a healthy reality yeah. of learning jujitsu. Yeah. Different perspectives, yeah. et cetera. I, I think that's, or it would be, it's so easy to let ego, and you already said affiliation supersede that. And that's anti the whole point of what you already said of we define everything else. It's bringing people together in a community, being a part of that and destroying isolation. Talk to me a little bit, me and Pauly, because it's his question. I'm just rephrasing it into the microphone uh, <laughs> about like the attrition rate of, of we defy athlete sponsored, we defy athletes or um, how they go on to continue on. Well, there's, there's two kinds of attrition. There's one where after the program you say, okay, I'm done with jiu-jitsu. That's one kind of attrition. Um, that's something that's really hard for us to 
to really track. Um, we only sponsor for a year because we don't have a limitless base. If we could continue, we would. Um, most of the guys anecdotally continue on or they find a way or the gym owners, if they are in a position that they can't afford jujitsu and we introduce it to them, there's a lot of gym owners that, that will go out of their way to keep a guy on their roster because they know what's happening to that individual from the process. Um, those are awesome partners and there's a lot of them that do that. The quit rate is super low. Um, I know of six. You mean like within that first year quit? Yeah, within that while yeah. they're under scholarship that say, okay, I quit. Sure. It's I, I know of six. Out That's of, not a lot. Out of 236 that we have sponsored. Some of the re- some of the um, early early days when it was more ad hoc, like it wasn't as formal. It was just in Texas. It's harder for We don't have sure, sure. great data. As we've grown, we've gotten more and more data. But I have six documented cases of guys that said I'm, I'm done. Or they ghosted. Like they just... Yeah, yeah, but it almost it almost never happens. That is awesome. Yeah, I mean it's 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 for real. I mean, you're taking people that are alone. Yeah. In some cases. Well, and, like we talked about the, yeah. the the things that are officially missing once you got out of service or whatever. Yeah, you're finding them again. A version of that is back in your life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. of course it would work, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I you don't like Marvel movies. Uh, you can't phrase it that way because I've never seen any, <laughs> so I don't know. You don't know. It's, it doesn't seem a lot like my cup of tea until the Joker, and I know we're not talking Marvel at that point. Sure. But until the Joker, like the Joaquin Phoenix Joker, yeah, the last Batman or anything like that I had seen, um, it was I, what I presume is the peak in quality for Batman movies with Arnold Schwarzenegger, everybody <laughs> chill. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, so I haven't bothered to see any of them. It also just doesn't seem really like my cup of tea too much. Why do you ask? Um, I think um, I love the Marvel movies. Sure. They're so well they're so well done. So a lot of them are so well written in the continuity over time. I mean, of course, it's comic booky. so it's – what do you mean they're good movies? Well – it depends on what you're, what you're yeah. wanting. Right? It's not Schindler's List. I think we can all like, yeah, understand 100%. what we're walking into. Hundred percent. Right? Um, but there, you know, uh, there's not been a lot of movies that really did fighter pilot very well. There's like one that everybody knows about, <laughs> and um, which segue by the way, the next one that's coming out, the footage from that is phenomenal. Like if you've watched the trailers for it no, for the for, ne- for the, the next the Top, Gun, Top Gun, yeah. it's mind blowing. I have never seen footage. I mean, it, they're shooting it with IMAX cameras inside the cockpit and the G's. Like, I mean, I know I don't know how many. I stopped counting people I know that died in fighter aircraft because there's a lot, and the G's will kill you. That machine is built to rip a human being apart and the only thing that stops that is either the limiter that they put in the airplane to stop it depending on its avionics or you and knowing where your limit is and people exceed that in a fight in the air even in training um and the footage that they're showing in this in the previews for when top gun finally comes out again is phenomenal 
and it's as close as anything I've ever seen to actually like feeling like you're in a cockpit. It's unbelievable. I can't wait till that movie comes out. Even if it's terrible, yeah. I just want to see the flying footage. It, it'll be terrible, won't it? I don't know. Le- there's there's a, a a number of years or something after an original product where a subsequent related product seems to fail every time. But part of me also says, what year was Top Gun made? Uh, 85-ish? 87, something, yeah, mid-80s, yeah. And you yeah. can't look it up. Young Polly, Google that. Um, when you consider how much more awesomer that could have been with today's like CGI yeah. and all the other technologies, yeah. it it would seem like it'd be a fun fucking ride. Yeah. Too. Well, I mean, like the, the original movie, like the dogfight scenes, they're just flying around together. Like, sure. It's like if a doctor watched House. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right word. That word. is such crap, right? Yeah. But it's fun. It is it is a fun movie to see. Like and the things that they're saying are happening aren't even close to what's actually would actually be sure. But, but nobody, you can't shoot nobody that. knows. Nobody knows that. Yeah, I mean, you can't knows. shoot that. Eighty six. Eighty six. The stuff that they've shown in the trailers for the new one is yeah. mind blowing. And it is maybe that's all they got footage wise and they put it they sure. blew it early. Yeah. I don't know. It's it looks awesome and i can't right. wait i can't wait to see it for sure um, and i want to see it in an imax theater because like the when you're out on that flight line like the jet it rumbles your chest that sound and the, the smell you know from the flight line and all the chemicals and the gas yep. and, man, yep. and the exhaust and all those associative things 105 degrees in the flight line and you walk behind another airplane that's a couple rows over but you still feel the jet blast heat and you're just sweating and you go and you you fly and you you're max performing the body at nine G's and you're exhausted and you get down and you finish and you want to just get back in the air conditioning. Cause you're, you're spent in a way that's different from jujitsu. Um, but there's some similarity to it and I've never seen any of that feeling replicated on, on a show before, but that movie looks like maybe they, maybe they're getting it. Maybe yeah. I'm so excited to see it. I hope, I hope they nail it. Um, yeah, but well, anyway, that, that's the that that's you probably expanded out to like arts in general, but that's the same thing I say about photos. Like you were talking about yeah. seeing the pictures of Jeremy and Marcus in yeah. the background. Yeah, a good photo makes you feel. Yeah, you don't look at a good photo; you feel a good photo. Yeah, you look it's at pictures, there. right? It's yeah. different. The same kind of thing with hearing a certain song or watching a movie. Like, am I feeling the moment they're selling me in yeah. this in this art? You know. Well, that's why I brought up the Marvel movies. Okay. Because there's, um, they really take them seriously when they, when they build them and when they make them and when they write them. And Captain Marvel was uh, one of the more recent ones. You've seen that, Polly? Okay. It's a it, there's it's a origin story about a female who there's aliens and all these other superpowers and things that happen. But she, in her previous iteration of life, or you know before she became a superhuman, was a female Air Force Academy graduate and fighter pilot. And um, she has a flashback scene fairly early in the movie where they're kind of explaining her past. Yeah. And there's a scene where she's wearing a particular T-shirt with camouflage pants on. Like, it's it's the actual T-shirt we wore at the Air Force Academy. Hmm. And she's interacting with upperclassmen and getting yelled at. And they're actually wearing the berets with the insignia. I mean, they went to really good detail on this. And then there's a scene. You wouldn't know, notice this unless you, you had flown fighters. Where she's in, in the bar and there's a pool table and they drop two balls. 
on the table, only two. And then she's running around and pushing each other. That people are pushing each other by this pool table. And if you didn't know, you would think they must have been playing pool, but they weren't. They're playing a game called crud, which is a full contact. Only the corners of the table are used. And there's certain crud tables, too, that don't have side side pockets. That's an official crud table. Mm-hmm. And you have to you, you can only shoot the ball. It's by hand to try to hit the other ball into the pocket or keep it moving. And if the ball dies or goes in the pocket, then there's a loser. And then you you you, you know you change under person the team. You have like teams of three and three or four and four. And it's full contact. You are beating the shit out of each <laughs> other in this people in a, drinking in their flight suits, in the bar, you know, me versus guys your size just yeah. slamming into each other. And I'm so competitive. Like, I was, I loved playing crud. Why is that in a movie like that? No one would know. Like, that just speaks to the level of detail yeah. that these filmmakers. The right people will know. The right people yeah. will know. So, at the end of this flashback scene, one of the last things they show, it's just, just barely enough for you to see it, is a burning piano. And you wouldn't, you'd be like, why is there a burning piano? Oh, it's a burning piano, okay. In World War II in the Battle of Britain, there was a British fighter squadron where one of the pilots was a phenomenal piano player, so the story goes. Mm-hmm. And one day, he didn't come back. So the squadron that night threw a party, and they all drank and they all sang songs, but nobody played the piano. And at the end of the party, they burned the piano. And that piano in that movie is for a guy named Cajun. Cajun was um, Thunderbird 4. And he was the uh, Air Force assigned advisor to Captain Marvel. He's in the movie. And he's in that crud scene. And he's in the credits. And two weeks after they filmed, they stopped filming, they finished filming that film, he slammed Thunderbird 4 into the ground. And died. So that was all done for him. And so you wouldn't know. It is, yeah, it's not just some like what's the phrase a dog whistle or like a no a virtue signal. That's a real that's gesture. A re- that's a real gesture. That was for th- that was for Cajun. So, give me some more fucking whiskey, <laughs> Polly. <laughs> But that's like, you know, I, I know. That's very cool. And, and I yeah. see what you mean of like, you know, good movie and fun to watch and whatever. But also they're, if they're doing the real shit in there. Yeah. I mean. That that makes it even better. Just I mean, just a um, a cool ass moment. And you if you hadn't flown fighters, you wouldn't know that. Yeah. But they did that for him. Right. And again, for his people. The right people. For the know. right people. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's a neat thing. Well, now I gotta go see Marvel movies. <laughs> well, you know, it helps if you're a real nerd, like I am too. So. Oh, I am. I only play one. Yeah, I I am full blown nerd. Yeah. <laughs> that what uh the weekend that the Avengers came out, that's a big one, right? Yeah. God, Huge. Exposing Huge. my ignorance here. Right? <laughs> we went to the movie theater, Wendy and I, and you know they got sixteen screens or whatever 15 of them had the avengers yeah and one of them had it was like the witch it was like a horror movie or something it was like the token okay there's also other movies we went and saw that 
if it was the witch it's one of the <laughs> one of the modern classics of, of horror we're horror people you know yeah whatever marvel is to you horror is sure to me. yeah go yeah, ahead I and extrapolate <laughs> out whatever psychological issues you want to pull from that go ahead but uh yeah, that, I guess that's kind of my relationship with Marvel is, <laughs> is, well, the the one screen where they're showing what we want to see is going to be empty. We're going to go check it out. And sure enough, it was. But Well, yeah, it's funny. Like, I, I love Star Wars. I grew up. I, Star Wars is sure. one of the things that made me want to fly. And, you know. When Captain if, Kirk and all that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know, the, yeah. <laughs> so, um, the Borg. Um, you know what the Borg is? Never mind. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, I, I'm like, someday I'm going to have a kid and they're going to go, they're going to get to watch Star Wars and they're going to watch Empire Strikes Back. And I remember when I saw that, I saw that in the theater and for three days afterwards, my dad walked around the house saying, I can't, I don't believe it. I can't believe it. I can't believe that Darth Vader is Luke's father. For three, I just my earliest well, one of my uh, earliest memories. I still remember my dad. Hold on, spoiler alert! I hey. haven't seen the fucking movies well, yet. At, you know? at this point, you're probably <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too soon, <laughs> it's brother. Four years. Um, That's like how one of Zach's teachable moments after an essentials jujitsu class one time was he explained a huge uh, part of the plot to plot part of the story of Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> And I was in the back like, hey, man, I haven't seen it yet. Like, slow yeah, down. I, I remember that class. He had no sympathy for my no. plight, though. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Um, Lu- so Luke's I, the father. Or Luke is yeah, Luke Darth Vader's is, yeah, father yeah, or something. Close enough. Okay. But, you know, I was, I, I was five. Yeah. And I walked out of there devastated, too. Not because of that. Because, like, Han Solo was just frozen in carbonite. Boba Fett took him away. Luke got his hand cut off, finds out about this family thing. I'm like, Mom, the credits are rolling. Mom, how's the mo- movie can't be over? She goes, why? Because like, the bad guys won. The most important lesson I could have learned from a movie, I learned when I was five. Sometimes the bad guys win. That's why nerd movies yeah. are amazing. Yeah, yeah. They hit all the same notes as the, the good movies, too. Yeah. You know? Of course, my mom said that. Like, well, don't worry. There's going to be another one. Then the good guys will win. Like, yeah. okay, fine. <laughs> then it all made sense in my five-year-old little mind. <laughs> yeah. You know? But <laughs> it's pretty traumatic otherwise. So you know, years later, I'm watching with my son, right? Mm-hmm. And, of course, we have phones and cameras, right? So I'm, like, trying to tape him while he's watching that scene. <laughs> And like the first time he's kind of like looking around the room, like, wait, I'm rewind it. Like, okay, he, okay, watch. And I'm taping it. And he's like, kind of like watching it. Hmm. Okay. And then, you know, I was like, no, Finn, watch. So I rewind it one more time. And he finally, he's like, so Darth Vader's his father? Like, yes. He's like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, but building this moment up in my mind yeah, as yeah. soon as I had a kid, like you will love Star Wars the way I loved it. Yeah. And you know, <laughs> it didn't quite go down that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but the problem though is it's, you know, there's probably like better special effects in like the bad Pixar movies, yeah. you know, that he's been watching. Well, you know, it's because we, sometimes we, we want, to make yeah. our kids or hope our kids understand the things that we liked the way we do. But uh, you know, it's more important to find out what they like and help them explore that. 
Yep. And then to find joy in watching that with them and spending the time. But it is kind of funny how I thought maybe he would take it the way I did. Not quite the same. Yeah. It's okay, too. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was, I had planned it out to be a momentous occasion. Sure, yeah. For you. <laughs> For me. For you, yeah. In fairness, he's over there singing Baby Shark or something. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, now he's in the bad, the Michael Jackson song, Bad. Really? Because that's in um, Despicable Me 3. And oh. I got... I got to give him credit. He digs good music. He likes Muse. He likes Foo Fighters. He likes a lot of the stuff, but then he sometimes, what? (laughs) Stuck with Muse is amazing. Oh God, they're so good. But But yeah, no, right now we're listening to like, would you play it? Yes, I will play it again. Yeah. Yeah. Play. Did you play the Weird Al version yet? No. Give him that one. See how it grabs <laughs> Throw him for a loop. Yeah. Yeah, he won't be able to reconcile that in his yeah, little no. seven-year-old mind. <laughs> That'll be his Darth Vader's what? the dad moment. Yeah. What did they do to yeah. bad? <laughs> uh. <laughs> you know what else is interesting about the fighter pilot community is call signs. Tell me what a call sign is. It's your nickname. For example, um, like you ru- actually. Ru- rubber duck. and You brought this up. In I the did? previous podcast, yeah, I'm you sure don't get to name yourself. Yeah, the nickname thing—you don't get to pick. No, your you wouldn't call yourself possum, and people take it. Yeah, they would definitely come up with something worse. Yeah, especially if you said, if "I kind of want to be called this." Yeah, if you call, if you pick it, and or you like it, it's forget not, it. It's, it's not done. your nickname. Sorry. And these the naming ceremonies were always fun because they're in the bar, and they'd usually start off pretty reasonable, but by the end of the night, <laughs> the like, names that we like, we Monday everybody show up with their new name tag with their name, I like. Why did we call you that? Like nobody, <laughs> chicken fucker. No. Hey, why? How did I get that one? Well, and then one of them, one of the famous ones, or like everybody always at some point, somebody let's call him Asface. If you spell it, it's A S S F A C E. So it's Asface, but it's in like, French. It's like beard so face. So it's fine. <laughs> From Scrubs, beard face. I did, and these As things would face, just that's even better though. Oh my god, yeah, these things would just get unraveled. So if yeah. you want, if you wanted to call yourself Possum. <laughs> Then they would probably, you know, somebody would say, "What about like gerbil, or yeah. a rat?" And it would you know? just spiral. Oh god! And by the end, like somebody would be like, "What about Nim?" Like the secrets of Nim. Like go meta about. Oh it. yeah, they get all this crazy shit. And then if it was, if you were named earlier in the night, your name was usually made sense. But by the end of the night, it yeah. was. A but shit barroom show. conversations don't oh. ascend. Oh, it would just unravel. It, they, yeah. they were fun nights. <laughs> Blitz. It's uh, you know I didn't usually you get a name because you dork something up pretty good at some the, point but I, at that point I hadn't quite yet so it's 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 an acronym for boys laugh is too zealous because sometimes when we were drinking I would get I'd laugh a lot <laughs> and get a little bit uh, I don't know excessive <laughs> so that's kind of where and it was also a little bit of a play on my last name because it's, it's a very German name. It's Kreitzer, so Blitzkreitzer was like a play on Blitzkrieg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you see, all kinds of, like, some guys, guy in last name was Klein, so we called him Calvin. Naturally, you yeah. Know, which, that may, makes sense. But there's all kinds. There's a guy who, um, we, he was trying to drop one bomb. This is in training. But four came off, because he had messed up his... Um, Sisti, he had messed up the programming on the computer. I'm so really four happy, came off. Really happy you said this was in training. It was in training because we used to be a practice train. So no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we, so we called him Quattro. But how do you spell Quattro? 
I don't know. But whichever one we named him was the wrong one. <laughs> because the na- on Monday, somebody's like, hey, we have to change this because Quattro is actually with, in Spanish. It's like, no. Nope. He was named with this many T's. And that is his name. And to this name, I still call him Quattro. It's the sanctity of the nickname. Yeah. Do not yeah. question. But you know what? He didn't say, hey, will you guys call me Quattro? Yeah. We picked it. <laughs> That's how it works. That's the system. Randy Dorkson. Kung, Kung Fu Panda. He didn't pick Randy Dorkson? Scary Ryan. I'm going to come up with as many of these from M Theory as I can think of. Yeah. Pottery Barn? <laughs> Potty Bomb? Ishmael? Squishmail. Yeah. Mm, who knows? Yeah. Like, uh, honestly, even just like an on-topic thing, you know, would would the people above you at We Defy be disappointed if you didn't mention this or that? Because we, we're, we're fully, no, we're fully into the bullshitting phase at this point. There's one person above me at We Defy. <laughs> so, lean into the mic and say that? No. <laughs> <laughs> Do we do we want to get into that one? <laughs> get into which one? Chris. Chris Claviter. Claviter. Mm. Chris Claviter. Um, who is my best friend? Does, I don't know if I. Does I'm, he know that? I don't. Yes. Oh, okay. I don't know if he's if I'm his best friend. He's that, my best friend. The, he's got like one A, one B, one C. Probably. I think that's how he operates. Yeah, he's very transactional too. Yeah. So, you know. So I don't know. He's kind of. I don't know why he's my. Yeah. I mean, well. <laughs> yeah. He uh, transactional. Did he actually wrestle? At some point, Chris didn't wrestle. No. no. He. I don't. Because he th- thinks he can wrestle. Like, that's what you know. And, and Natalie. Natalie is awesome. Clearly. He, he can dad wrestle. He yeah, wrestles he with dad. other wrestling yeah. dads, which yeah. means he can <laughs> out wrestle me probably, but. Yeah, I yeah I think so, but not even probably. Um, what am I talking about? So the he and I we have we do we have some good rounds, and it's been a while now that since we've rolled. But one of the last times we rolled, um, he doesn't play a lot of guard, and um, I got he actually you know we were rolling around and it ended up in his full guard, and um, you know I was like Chris can't play guard, so I'm fine. <laughs> So kind of ball walking a little bit, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, one arm in, one arm out. Eh, these his legs. I was like, nah, they're not. It's not a threat. <laughs> oh, I'm in that diamond for a triangle now. I'm like, shit, I'm gonna, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm probably screwed. <laughs> so we probably sat there for about nine minutes <laughs> in that diamond. Yeah, because <laughs> he did not know how to. Lock it up and finish triangle. <laughs> and I was I'm, looking, I'm, at he, and he he had this face, this look on his face, like something between like being perplexed and being scared, because he knew he wasn't going to be able to finish the triangle, and eventually he knew that I knew he wasn't going to be able to finish the triangle either. <laughs> and the round finally ended like 14 minutes later, where he had still <laughs> not finished the triangle. <laughs> well, now hold on, hold on. Does this also mean you? were unable to escape the position at some point i felt that i had negated the threat of a submission because i was in his triangle so So just by essence of being there yeah i was fine it was safe it was a safe place who's stalling in that position uh definitely chris (laughs) (laughs) whether or not you know what to do or can do what you need to do you're currently stalling 
duck. Yeah. I was not getting out. Sure. And he. Can you just pick him up and scare him? No, man. That's what I would have done. I'm right too there. little. Oh, okay. No, he what he he's got 30, 40, 20 pounds on me. Yeah, twenty more like twenty. Yeah, but no, he actually it was I was stuck for a minute and a half, two minutes, and I could not get out. I'm like shit. I'm gonna tap. I'm gonna have to tap here, and he just couldn't figure out how yeah. to finish it. Now he has comored me plenty because sure. that's more his game. Yeah, but I will never forget like because I triangle the shit out of that guy. <laughs> Okay, so see that, so that, that kinda, makes it better to know the other side that yeah, typically the that's game the other is. Part of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What what do you like jujitsu wise? What's your game, brother? Um I like I like to attack. I like to do takedowns. Um I've I've worked on some wrestling takedowns. They're not good again like by a wrestler's standard, but they're passable for jujitsu. I also like judo. Um I like foot sweeps, anything. I'm just going to attack. And I'm going to try to take you down. And then if I end up in your guard, and actually I kind of like when people pull guard because I want to pass your guard. That's what I, that's my mentality. It's part of attacking, right? You, yeah. You're it's, I, I'm, I want to attack. Um, and then eventually would like to get to side control and force you to let me get to your back. I don't play a lot of mount as a, as a smaller guy. Um, and Marcus kind of talked about this too. It's maybe not, it's great if you can get it and keep it, but it's not super easy to maintain. I think Ishmael has even said like side control is probably the hardest position to escape. Yeah. And what's really great for me about side control is even though I'm smaller, I can float easy to the other side or to north, south. And there's all kinds of great submissions and like paper cutters and things like that, like, um, that exist in that area. And from there, a lot of times I can get someone to roll up on their side, which then I go to take the back. And I think out of competition, seven of my last eight submission wins in competition were from the back. I think that's just where I go. And that's kind of been what my game has become. Um, I you spent, just kind of fall into that? Like over the years, did it yeah. just, you just start realizing, hmm, I find myself in a position and this makes more sense to get there. And Yeah, part of it is that. And part of it might be because – when Zach was, this is another Zach path story. Like why I attached myself to mm -hmm. Zach. He spent, uh, he and I spent a lot of time watching Orion Hall passing DVD and we watched Danaher back take. So I spent a lot of time really cultivating that with Zach. Yeah, visualizing if nothing else. Yeah. Right? And it, and it became something that I was very comfortable with. And in 2020, when I did get to train, I spent a lot of time working lasso and daily Hiva because I find myself lasso I can get myself to, and I've been very interested in utilizing it. De La Hiva, I find myself in a lot, but I don't have a lot of attacking options there. Like I'm not, I could probably pull off Barambolo. Like I've got the flexibility, even though I'm older, but I haven't studied it. And that's one of those moves to me that I think would take so much time of drilling and study to really get good at that. I'm not willing right now to do that because there's other things that are a little more um, simple that might that might get me there faster now. Why don't you work on Barambolo? Um, I it's one of those things that I think it's so technical and it looks like to really get somewhere with it, you need three, four, five, six steps in a row. And that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It's just that with the amount of time I have to train and the way that I, I do my game, I like stuff that is simple and effective. I, I want to go from here to there in the like the shortest path possible. 
that doesn't like Sebastian is amazing, but I don't have the time. Yeah. That a 19 year old has the guys I can think of that. I know that play Barambolo are guys that are also drilling it for hours and yeah. hours every day. You know what yeah. I mean? And I, I drill a lot, but it's dominant stuff for the most part. And I, I have a really good close guard that I I've had to have because I'm small. So I'll end up in a guard because I'm undersized, but my whole intent from guard is either submit you right now or quickly escape and reverse. Cause I'm scrambly too. That's part of my game is, is scramble. Um, or to, I, but I, my game right now is not, I'm going to grab here, then here, then here and move myself to this position and then tip you over and stand up and get two points. Like that's just not how I play. And Sebastian and I, especially before um, COVID cause now he's just a monster we would have like 10 minute matches where nobody would score except he would maybe have the equivalent of an advantage. And it was infuriating because he would get it because <laughs> he would like shift one little thing and I would boop on my hip and he would pop up and maybe I'd come right back, but that would be enough for it to be an advantage. Yeah. And that one, that was just so frustrating. But I mean, that's, that's the way it goes. If you spend the time learning that stuff, you can pull that off. I like, um, I'm a little more, I like topside smushy as much as my little body can pull off. Um, that's, that's just what I gravitate towards. Yeah. That makes sense to me, brother. Trust <laughs> me. Smushy. <laughs> <laughs> I also like, um, the reason I like takedowns over guard pulling, uh, is your, it goes along with that attacking mentality. You're setting, you're, 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 Stating the terms. This is how it's going to go. It doesn't always work, but I like walking into a, a role that way. And I have been in competition. Jose, Jose told me this um, after when I came back from Worlds. He said, he said, I knew you were going to do well. Um, he goes, I didn't think you were I, I didn't know if you'd win, but I knew you'd be on the podium. I'm like, why, why did you know this? Because remember when you got your blue belt and you competed right away? I said, yeah. He goes, remember how you got your ass kicked a ton? <laughs> and I made that decision early because, like, I could wait till I'm three or four stripes to compete. And I thought about it. Like, man, you know what? The only thing I'm doing by doing that is protecting myself from disappointment. Like, I can handle being disappointed, so I might as well start competing right now. And um, he said, the reason you did so well in that particular tournament is because you were ready for that moment and those other guys weren't. And you could see it in those matches because I was, I was here in Minnesota, but I was watching your matches and I watched your body language and theirs. And you were ready for that moment because you'd been there and they weren't and they folded. And I think it's because of that game. It's because I really intend to come in there and dictate the terms from the beginning. If I can, you know, and I'm still working on it. I think that's a great way to, to pursue or to prosecute a match. Is that a predictable answer, your preference, given that you're a fighter pilot? I don't know. Um, Does that make sense in my head be just because of that? I, It fits my mentality because I'm, I'm an intense person. So, yes. I don't know for sure <laughs> that fighter, that it's... A, like, well, not that specifically, but the the personality traits and characteristics, the psychology of doing probably, something intense yeah, like probably, that. Probably, yeah, probably. You know, I would expect that guy to be like, yeah, let's stand up and wrestle. Or 
forget grappling. Let's just fight. Well, and it's like <laughs> guys will yeah. always finish like will, men. People will sit with me, and 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 I'll stand. Like, oh, do you want to stand? Like, you do whatever you want. I don't. You start however you want. Yeah. I'm standing, and because I'm thinking like I want to pass your guard. And if you want to sit, that's fine. And some people who are great guard players, really challenging. But that's what I want to do. And if you want to stand, then awesome. And I don't care how big a dude is. I will do my damnedest to try to take them down. And that's just how I get better at it. And I, it's like newer guys, when they're trying to learn how to do single legs, and they'll shoot a single leg on me, and I guillotine them or whatever. Like, and like, oh, man, I shouldn't have done that. No, you absolutely should have done that. And you have to be guillotined like 18,000 more times, and then you'll figure out how to not let that happen. Maybe. You know? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> or maybe you'll never learn. Yeah. yeah. Just. No, but I think you have to, you have to be willing to um, put yourself in a crappy situation and take your lumps and fail over and over and over yep. before you learn how to do it right. Here's a reflection of how my brain works. Is We Defy put on their own events and or is that the kind of thing on the on the uh, to-do list? You know, it's it's not. Um, we partner with other groups and utilize their events. And a lot of that's for like insurance, logistics, things like that. We are usually the beneficiary of someone else's event. And that's that's the simplest and most effective way for us to um, effectively raise funds to do more than that would require more expenditures yeah and more red tape and that takes away from our ability to be efficient and put brings that percentage down presumably yeah 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 Yeah. and i suppose even it, it sort of makes sense like you are the intermediary between the people who need jujitsu and the gyms that provide it yeah you keep that identity. Yeah, we're the facilitator. The events. Yep. Yeah, yeah, for sure. God, I was so pumped about that question. <laughs> I was like, "Oh man, we're getting this is the next level." Yeah, oh yeah, we've oh, yeah, been yeah. talking about. Oh. Damn it. <laughs> no, we'll call it right there. Bail. So. You feel good about it? Yeah, I, I feel good about it, man. Thanks. I do too. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, man.